Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, is it possible to make a private phone call anymore? The answer may surprise you. Level 3 and Cisco are battling a huge botnet and how to build a successful information security career. Plus a great batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 209 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 9th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, it's so close to when you and I are going to be in person, I can almost mm. taste the Canadian bacon because Linux Fest Northwest, April 25th and 26th, that's pretty soon. You're going to get what? Yep. Uh, so next week is the last week where we have a remote show. Am I getting that right? Yep. Yes. Oh, my gosh, Alan. And uh, the Linux Action Show shirt that we've been selling to help uh, finance the Linux Fest Northwest adventures actually re-tipped. So it's reshipping again with three days left over at teespring.com slash Linux. If you want to grab a T-shirt or a hoodie, uh, you got a couple colors over there. And that helped. The uh, the money we're raising there helps uh, our efforts at Linux Fest Northwest. So that's kind of cool that it relaunched. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited. And uh, I was thinking, Alan, for the TechSnap audience members that show up wearing like a TechSnap 100 or TechSnap 200 shirt, I think they're going to get free cake. You hear that, Alan, right now? He's typing in the command to order free cake for those of you who have a classic TechSnap shirt. You, Alan's put the order in right there. So free cake for those of you who are TechSnap fans and uh, rock a little swag. Or, mm-hmm. Well, see, but we but also if they want to rock last swag, but are TechSnap fans, you just give us the wink. No, just either TechSnap shirt, and you'll be awesome. Well, uh, what if what if they have it? What if they have it's, like it's a, a Linux fest? You're not going to get any extra Linux people. So well, hold on. What, what about them all the tech What about the combo approach, like the TechSnap shirt with the last hooded jacket? Right. I feel like that's oh, worthy well, of cake. Hopefully, it's, I think it's that's nice enough that you're not going to need a hoodie. Oh wow! Wow! Right? Weather? Wow. wow. Yeah, actually, it's so gorgeous today that if it wasn't for the maniacs that are trying to dominate the earth over there, I would actually have my window open with a nice breeze coming to my studio. But instead, humanity must conquer the earth constantly, so I have my window closed. Alan, and that's fine because that brings us together here on this afternoon to talk about the news. And uh, our first story, if I'm not mistaken, comes from uh, Fast Company and it's some tips on how to make a really secret phone call. Is that even possible anymore? Is that like a thing you can Uh do? Well, this is actually more of an art project, but uh, it's an interesting thought experiment into the all of it anyway. Sure. Uh, so this is kind of related. We've talked about some of this stuff in the past, but I just thought uh, this kind of brought it together very nicely mm. and uh, actually addressed some of the practical considerations, even though it's still pretty impractical. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know... Uh, there's a lot you can find in the depths of the dark web, but in 2013, a photographer named... Uh, Curtis Wallen managed to actually buy the ingredients for a new identity. So he went and bought a uh, Chromebook with cash, so there was no record that it was his Chromebook. Mm. Then he used Tor and uh, some virtual marketplaces and digital undergrounds and things like that, uh, and his Bitcoin wallet uh, to purchase a fake driver's license, an insurance card, a social security number, uh, and a cable bill so they could use to prove his identity, and a bunch of other identity documents that he would need. Huh. And with that, he created a new identity. Aaron Brown, uh, and 
you know, more than just the art, uh, Baum was obviously also a political statement on, you know, the techno-surveillance age that we currently live in. Mm. Uh, and it cross-links to a previous Fast Company article and also a, uh, a Vice.com article about how the fake person was created, if you want more details on that part of it specifically. Um, so this article sets out the steps required to actually conduct an untraceable phone call. Uh, in particular, the instructions are actually based on looking at how the CIA's operational security was compromised by cell phones on a number of previous operations. So it's based on how to not make the same mistakes the CIA did uh, when they were making phone calls on their cell phones. Uh, so in particular, there were uh, the case in 2005 when they were doing the extraordinary rendition of Hassan Mustafa Osama uh, from Italy. Um, it turned out that because of metadata, the Italian government was able to figure out what was going on and that caused the CIA some uh, trouble. And then they were also uh, conducting surveillance of Lebanese Hezbollah. And because that's the government in Lebanon, uh, they were able to uh, actually you know, have access to the cell phone tower information and be able to track the CIA oh, wow. using their cell phones. Mm. Uh, and so adding uh, some of that into what we already know about making secure phone calls, and he basically came up with a, a system for it. Okay. Uh, so using a, basically use a prepaid burner phone and then posting the number uh, hidden in plain sight on Twitter <laughs> Uh, and then waiting for your partner to decrypt that message and then call you at the ah, specified time. clever. So uh, the first step, to analyze your daily movements and uh, pay special attention to any anchor points like home and work, which are places where you go and spend a lot of time, uh, and dormant periods uh, in your schedule. You know, normally like from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m., you know, you're at home, but you're still awake or whatever. Uh, or, you know, uh, when your cell phones aren't in... Uh, when your cell phone is staying in the same place a lot, right? Uh, because that's kind of what you want to exploit, right? When If you're expected to be at home at that time, then your cell phone staying at home makes sense at that time, of right? Of course. Uh, so leave your daily cell phone behind during these dormant periods and purchase a prepaid, no-contract cell phone, it right? Seems, a burner phone. It seems that on, its, on the surface seems kind of obvious, but you would have to be aware of the, sort of the background technology, the way it works. You would have to know that Every time your cell phone moves between towers, that's tracked. And so you would then have to know to leave your cell phone behind. And it's going to be like that at every step of the way. You would have to be, at some level, fairly informed. Once you're fairly informed, you kind of understand how to manipulate the system. But yeah. th that seems to be like the gap you have to be able well, to Because even worse, if you're directly being monitored, then it, they can actually just be watching where you are all the time rather than actually just being able to go back and get the record of which tower your cell phone was on at yeah, each different real time. Yeah, real time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the biggest one is to make sure that your daily cell phone and your burner phone never come online on the network in the same place. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Because, okay. because if you turn the burner on at your house while your cell phone is at your house, uh, then they know that it's most likely your phone at that point, right? Mm -hmm. If it spends a lot of time in the same place as your phone. Right. They can yeah, at least basically. they can make a safe assumption, which is pretty much all they really need exactly. to, to follow you. <laughs> exactly. And so... Uh, yeah, you want to leave your daily cell phone behind when you go to, uh, so if you go out to buy it, they don't know that you actually left your house necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Um, so after, you, when you buy the burner phone, you want to store it in a Faraday bag uh, so that it can't be emitting a signal even if it's powered off or whatever. 
and then you want to activate it using a clean computer connected to public Wi-Fi. Wow. Right? Because you actually have to activate the phone. So you have to go online from somewhere to do that. Yeah. And so you want to make sure you do that, you know, at an internet cafe or on public Wi-Fi with a computer that is no way associated with you. You know, you don't realize it, but, you know, your laptop has all kinds of information about you on it. And, you know, it has Google tracking cookies and so on. And, and basically a fingerprint about the specific laptop. Uh, and, you know, they might be able to track that back to say, oh, that burner cell phone was activated from a computer that belongs, that we've seen over here. You might not know exactly who it belongs to, but right. every bit of data that they get yep. that these two things are related, that gives them more to go on. That totally underscores exactly what I was just saying. That's like, that makes a lot of sense, but unless you've thought that through, it's a very easy thing to circumvent unless you don't think to circumvent it. And right. that's how this whole thing is. Like, once you kind of learn the system, uh, you can kind of, there, there's a different form of hacking where you just sort of, I, 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 you know, honestly, Alan, I might, I might have been dumb enough to activate it at my house if I was, you know, yeah. thinking you know, about like, it. You know, I, I have no record it. it was me and I'm just activating it, uh, not thinking that, you know, the government has been able to go to the cell phone company and be like, what was the IP address that went to the website to activate this? Makes sense. They would though, right? That exactly. Of course. And so, you know. You will want to use your computer or any computer that <laughs> uh, can be traced back to you right. and so on. Right. Uh, then uh, um, they recommend encrypting the cell phone number using a one-time pad encryption system. So obviously for a one-time pad to work, you have to have pre-shared the secret key with the other person. And unlike regular encryption where you have like a password or something as a key, one-time pad, you basically have a big long random key that has to be at least as long as the message. And if you want to send more than one message, you're going to need more of these long keys and whatever. Uh, and the one-time pad's only secure if the same key is never used twice and if only the two people ever have the key and if you destroy it uh, after you've sent the message. Uh, anyway. And uh, what they recommend doing is uh, tweeting an innocuous image, doing something that, you know, send out a tweet with an image of your dinner or whatever, just like normal people do, so that nobody's going to suspect that it's something strange. Uh, but the file name of the image is usually some random thing like the SHA-256 hash of something or you know something like that uh, when you tweet an image. And what they recommend is renaming the image to the encrypted string.jpg or whatever. And then the person that sees the tweet and knows to look for you sending this secret message or whatever uh, will then be able to take the file name of the tweet, decrypt it, and get the message of which phone number, the phone number for the burner, and what time to call at. That's pretty clever. You'd have to make sure that the URL, whatever, wherever you put the image, doesn't create, you know, obscure the file name. Yeah. But yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not possible. That's actually the problem with Twitter, <laughs> is that they usually end up copying the image and hosting it themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or to avoid, like, to avoid slash dotting your web server yeah. when people view the tweet. Yeah. And if they don't maintain your file name, then you could have the problem. Because that was also the problem you would have with just using steganography or something to hide something in the picture mm-hmm. is Twitter might resize the picture right, and it. Throw, it, throw away all your to secret data. To make it data. mobile friendly or whatever they think they need exactly. to do. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's that. Uh, and then, so when you actually want to do this, you have to leave your regular cell phone behind, avoid going to any anchor points or anything, you know, places that are associated with you. Uh, and then receive a the, uh, phone call from your partner on the burner phone at some specific time uh, that's in your normal dormant time, right? Where uh, you're going to be able, by leaving your cell phone at home, make it look like you stayed at home, right? That you never left your house during that period when you're actually out uh, in some random place to receive the phone call. 
And then you have to wipe down and destroy the handset so that they can't find it later and find your fingerprints on it and prove it was you or whatever. Uh, and he says, this approach is actually very passive. Uh, for example, posting an image to Twitter is a very common thing to do. And it's also very common for image names to have random numbers and letters as the file name. Uh, so if you've arranged an account where I'm going to post an encoded message and that message comes in the form of a random file name, someone can see that image posted to a public Twitter account, write down the file name and decrypt it by hand without ever actually loading the image. Uh, you know, access that Twitter account from Tor, from a public internet network or something, and there's hardly any trace that the interaction ever happened. Right? So it's hard for uh, the government to actually find out who... Mm -hmm. saw the picture that you posted that yeah. had the encrypted yeah. messages file. That's, boy, yeah, no kidding. You know, especially, you know, if you're just following lots of Twitter accounts yeah. and you just read your feed, there's just fire hose, right? Well, and if you're, if you're clever, you would tweet, you would tweet stuff like that that was sort of common for you. So that way it wouldn't look out of place exactly. that you were tweeting something like that. So it would just look like part of your regular twi Twitter stream, Twitter right. stream, you, whatever it's called. Lo lots of people tweet pictures of their dinner at dinner time, right? <laughs> And so it wouldn't be uncommon for that to happen. Right. Uh, so it's not actually easy, of course, right? It's actually comically hard. If the CIA, if the CIA can't even keep uh, from getting betrayed by their cell phones, what chance do we as regular people have, right? Right. You can only do your best. Yeah. Uh, and central to good privacy is eliminating or reducing anomalies that would pop up on surveillance radars, right? If you use robust encryption or keep switching SIM cards, that's going to make them look at you more closely. And really what you want to avoid is being looked at, right? If you can stay uh -oh. under the radar as long as you can, <laughs> then... Uh-oh. Uh I'm switching right? SIM cards all the time up in here. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, that's kind of a thing, right? Uh, to understand the risk of being uh, brought... Uh, or bringing unwanted attention to your own uh, privacy practices... Uh, Wallen examined the United States Marine Corps' Combat Hunter Program, which deals with threat assessment through observing, profiling, and tracking, and kind of designed to tell people what to look for when they're looking for this type of stuff. And so if you read it, you can know what not to do to avoid looking like someone that they should be looking for. <laughs> you know, uh, anomalies are really bad uh, for what you're trying to accomplish. It means any overt encryption is bad because it's a giant red flag that you are doing something they would want to look at, right? Dang it. Or that you don't want other people to look at. Nothing. Uh, I tried to design the whole system with as a small a footprint as possible and avoid creating any analyzable links between the different things. Because that's the big thing is where you want to avoid creating links between these different steps and different pieces. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't want them to be able to associate um, the Twitter account with the burner phone or the next burner phone, right? And if you switch burner phones or something, you probably won't need to switch Twitter accounts just to avoid creating those links. Uh, he also managed to actually uh, consulting a bunch of different people. He managed to actually find a commercial Faraday bag that you can buy, and he has a link there. I saw the that. that I sells was just a a decent. Uh, yeah, it's the Ramsey RF shielded evidence pouch, <laughs> of which I guess uh, is actually designed for law enforcement. Oh, I was thinking. I was like. But do I want something like this? Like, you know, this, you know what this would be oh, good yeah, for, it's Alan? something you could buy. You know exactly. what I would use this for? Mm -hmm. Is if I ever was going to travel to, uh, like, uh, Black Hat or something like that, I'd keep, when I kept my phone in my hotel room, I'd keep it in this bag. <laughs> That's what I would do. And I definitely wouldn't bring the phone to the conference, but when it's in my yeah. room, it would be in this bag. That's Except for when you're using it or something. Yeah, right? exactly. I'd take it out yeah. to use it, yeah. 
Uh, so Wallen also cautions the audience of the article about uh, taking his instructions a little too literally. He says the project was less about arriving at the necessary practical system for evading cell phone tracking mm. than it was about the enjoyment of, you know, the game of it all and kind of being the spy game type stuff. Uh, you know, it. but he thinks that even though th that was kind of his goal, mm. the fact that it came out to be so impractical actually says a lot about the problem. We're in the system. Yeah. You're in the web. Well, and this is what was making me wonder: is uh, our our like uh, our our criminal alibi is going to require a cell phone component now? So, like, if, say I had a burner phone, and uh, I was using my burner phone for the evening, but I wanted to have a cellular alibi, and I knew my wife was going to go grocery shopping at the place that she and I grocery shop at all the time, and we usually go on the Tuesday night. So I just put my phone in her in her in her purse. Well, she goes to the shopping place that I normally go with her, and I head out that night with my burner phone, so that way I have a cellular alibi. The problem is there that they will probably look at the surveillance cameras. Oh, at, you're right. At grocery store. Gosh, and we we oh, are in the system. Right there. <laughs> yeah. So something to that effect, probably. Uh, although to do that, you might. What you need to do is have some other person use your cell phone to make a phone call from somewhere, away from where you are. To say, no, I was actually over here at that time. See, I made a phone call to somebody. Right? Uh, that way, instead of just a passive tracking, you have mm, the active yeah. metadata. Yeah. You know, because yeah. the government's not going to admit that they can tell where your cell phone is all the time. Right. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Be like, oh, when you made this phone call, you were off this cell tower, and that was way on the other side of the city or whatever, so you obviously couldn't have been in two places at once. <laughs> oh, right. the future is scary. Of the, um, <laughs> The, uh, the twins that do the bank robbery or whatever, one of them goes to a different branch right. to be on the, the security <laughs> camera. It's like, no, I was at this other branch right, no, when that bank me. got robbed, so it couldn't have been me. Right. <laughs> Boston Bombers should have tried that. All right, Al. Well, uh, any other thoughts on that story? <laughs> uh, yes, I grabbed... Uh, there's a great article here on actually how one-time pads work and how they were invented in the yeah. 1800s and how to use them securely and when what to be careful with. I don't think that's marked down, though. That, is that link marked down? I don't know if it's a markdown link, so it might not uh, yep, it. it's oh, marked down okay. right there. Right. Yeah, and then uh, there's also uh, like some quick screenshots in the article, the main article, but the, the one yep. you linked to there is way better. Yeah, the one I linked to there is it's like really cool. everything yeah. you could ever possibly I, want I to I showed know a couple of quick pads. shots of it on the video version, but it, yeah. the, the whole thing's in there. Well, yeah, the, uh, the main article, because it's like a, an art, Exhibit yeah. is full photos. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like a historical. I looked at look at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's good. And then I actually had one more link that, well, not exactly related. I found this was the best place to work it into this episode. It was actually uh, John Oliver has you know last week's news or whatever it's called last, on HP. Uh, last week tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did an episode on government surveillance and actually went to Russia and interviewed Edward Snowden about this stuff. Uh, and in particular, his concern was when they went and asked a bunch of random people on the street, most of them didn't seem to be that concerned about government surveillance. And a lot of them didn't seem to know who Edward Snowden was. And the people that thought they did thought he was the WikiLeaks guy. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's a great Benedict Cumberbatch joke in there and a bunch of other things. There, uh, yeah. <laughs> That I think, and I'm I, uh, I I go back and forth on John Oliver's stuff, but you know that one I really like that episode, uh, and um, and it had the, um, it had the over the topness to it that just makes you be like, eh, right? But it was, uh, but man, I actually see, I felt like but, it. 
at the same time, it was while it was being ironic and, and funny or whatever, it was making the point at the right. same time. Right. And I thought that's what did it. Well, so in particular, the- he, John Oliver found the way to get people to care about the Snowden level surveillance problems. Mm-hmm. When, when you talk to them in general about it, people don't understand and they get very concerned or they, they don't care. But when you change the message to, can the government get the dick pic I sent? <laughs> yeah. Then all of a sudden everybody starts to care about it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> episode, last night's episode of Unfilter 140, we, uh, we essentially, we, uh, we boiled down the, the most core components of, the, of that interview uh, and how Oliver managed to relate it. It was, a, I thought, a really good interview. And I think the main reason why it has a technical relation to it is this is all right around, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later in the roundup, using upstream collection, using collection of internet data. Uh, the Patriot Act is going to be renewed at the beginning of June. And that's why not only was it a great interview, Alan, but the timing from an American politics standpoint was pretty poignant because the public wasn't really aware of the fact that the Patriot Act is about to be renewed. The Patriot Act is, uh, and, and, and John Oliver specifically calls out the portions of the Patriot Act that enable the upstream collection, and that's about to be renewed. So it was a really great uh, interview. Um, and I thought it also made for a great episode of Unfilter 140. Uh, it was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would say check that out, too. Yeah. And the, uh, and the, yeah. the uh, interview is up on YouTube, John Oliver's interview. The whole episode's yes. great. The whole episode is longer than what's up on YouTube. So if you can get your hands on the whole episode, it's worth it. All right. Any other thoughts, Alan? Uh, no, let's put it for that story. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you about my friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support the TechSnap program. I super respect the Ting team. You know, they've had uh, a massive explosion of growth when they rolled out the GSM program. Plus, they had uh, some changes in the policies of how you bring devices over to Ting. Kind of a one-two punch. Huge growth. Lots of awesome things going on. And the Ting team has seriously responded. I want you to go check out Ting because they are really like nobody else in the business. What is it? It's mobile that makes sense. It's my mobile service provider. And here's why I love them. You only pay for what you use. There's no contracts. It's $6 for the line. So I have right here my Nexus 5, and this is uh, running on the Ting GSM network, and I love, I, I wake up every morning, one of the first things I do, this is this is a true story too, I just, it's kind of sappy, but, the fir- okay, so the, one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is I uh, unplug my phone, and I turn off my sleep tracking, and when I unplug my phone, my phone wakes up, and the first thing I see, and I'm not even joking, is the Ting logo up in the corner, and I love that, I love Ting, Ting is great, because it's just $6 for this phone, that's all I pay per month. I bought the phone, so I own it. And the line six dollars, and then I just pay the usage. Ting takes my minutes, my messages, my megabytes. They add that all up, and whatever bucket I fall into, that's what I pay at the end of the month. And I got everything in my plan, everything that you'd expect, like voicemail, all this stuff, picture messaging, caller ID, text messaging, blah 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 blah. Like, uh, and even like the stuff that like maybe you'd pay extra for with the duopolies, like uh, yes. Wi-Fi and tethering. That's all just included too. So. And, you know, here's what I love about that is if you have like uh, you have like a device like this, like an old tablet you have sitting around, uh, you're not really using it much, uh, but it has an empty GSM slot in it. Well, now you can go get a $9 GSM SIM from Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com because then you're going to get a $25 service credit. Now, follow me. If you're only paying for your usage and you don't have a contract and you have a tablet sitting around with a GSM slot, if you go to techsnap.ting.com, you're going to get a $25 service credit. And if you're, only use, if you're only paying for the data when you use it, that might last you for a few months. You might be able to get ubiquitous data on a tablet that you could then 
turn around and make that into a hotspot because you get that with your Ting plan. So then you could tether your other devices to it if you want to. I mean, the possibilities are awesome, right? In fact, I've even considered like maybe in the future I'd go with like a feature phone, like you know, just because like, they've got like feature phones for like seventy bucks that are rocks that last for like a week on battery. I'm thinking maybe I go feature phone for like my core telephone functionality, and then when I need things like Telegram and Data and Hangouts and Skype. Well, then I use like a Nexus 9 with a Ting GSM. The possibilities are endless. So go to techsnap.ting.com because there's a lot of different ways you could mix it up yourself. But they have a savings calculator. Go there. Click that. How much would you save? Input your current usage data in there from whatever provider you've currently got suckered into using. And don't worry. If you're in a contract, Ting's going to help you get out of that contract with their ETF program. See how much you would save and then go over there and check out their devices. It's pretty great. And <clears throat> also, go look at the Ting blog. They have a Spotify tip yes. there to help you save data, which uh, I got to say, mm-hmm, yeah, that's a really good one. I have Spotify. When was the last time your phone company tried to save you money? I know. <laughs> Alan, and check this out. Uh, hmm. So in my Spotify settings, I think it's something like, let me see here, settings. It's something like use extreme quality. Yeah, extreme quality is my audio setting, right? Extreme quality. Uh, and so I, <laughs> that that is no joke. Like, that is a lot of data. So in Spotify, and Ting tells you how to do it, and this is, I can, I can definitely say this is worth doing because, um, <clears throat> yeah, I burned through like two gigs one time when I first learned about Spotify. Uh, <laughs> so this is something I, so now what I do is I have playlists that I love, and I just offline those playlists. That gets surprisingly amount a large amount of my music so that way when I stream one or two songs it's no big deal and it's really straightforward to do and you can save a ton of bandwidth and just take advantage when you're on Wi-Fi go to techsnap.ting.com Ting's a great service and if you have any questions call them 1-855-TING-FTW 1-855-TING-FTW anytime between 8am or 8pm and a real human being will try to answer that phone they've been having some difficulties with this huge migration to GSM and uh, also some of the changes with uh, bringing your devices with Sprint but don't worry <coughs> Nobody has it handled like Ting, and they have an excellent online control panel. You can really pretty much always take care of it yourself. In fact, even though I've been a customer for over two years, I've never actually needed to call. I know I know the Ting service is great because I've called Hover support, and they, they have them structured similarly, uh, similarly, and the Hover support was really great. And I've gotten a <laughs> lot of emails from uh, audience members who have had really fantastic Ting customer support service, uh, like way above and beyond. Uh, like, you know, the Ting, Ting service members have, like, later on sent them, like, postcards just saying, hey, just following up, like, just still thinking about you, wondering how your service went. All this kind of stuff This is, like, unbelievable stories. Uh, mm -hmm. So you should really check them out. It's a great company. They're really going to help challenge the duopoly, and you can take part of it. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go check them out. And, you know, Alan, with that Nexus 5 of yours, when you're down here in the U.S., I think we could – I have a Ting GSM. I think we could pop in there. And you could rock it. Yeah, well, I'm going to bring my dual SIM Firefox phone as well. So oh, we'll cool. get all kinds of playing around. Yeah, okay. All right. Hey, so uh, it's been a while since we've talked about our friends, and I do mean friends over at Cisco, but they have uh, something like the SSH Apocalypse or something. I, I, I glanced at it earlier this week, and I'm glad you caught it. What's What the heck yes, is that? Uh, so Cisco and Level 3 have engaged in battle against a group now they've dubbed the SSH Psychos. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Kalos, which is Cisco's security group, has been monitoring a persistent threat for quite some time, a group uh, we refer to as SSH Psychos or Group Number 93. Uh, this group is well known for creating significant amounts of scanning traffic across the internet uh, with SSH brute force. Although our research efforts help inform and protect Cisco customers globally, sometimes it's our relationships that can multiply this impact. Uh, to that end, today Cisco and Level 3 uh, took action against uh, 
one of those large botnets to help ensure a significantly larger portion of the internet is also protected rather than only Cisco customers. Uh, so basically they detected uh, behavior because it's a large number of SSH brute force login attempts uh, coming from uh, two specific uh, network subnets. Uh, and they found that only attempting to guess the password for the root user using a database of over 300,000 unique passwords that are very commonly used for root passwords. Uh, once a successful login is achieved with the brute force, the next step involves a login from a completely different IP. So I think it's uh, one more graphic down from where you are now. Go down a little bit under behavior. Scanning, scanning, and accelerating yep. scanning. Accelerate. <laughs> it doesn't scan that fast in this mode. Yep. There you go. There it is. So you can see uh, they have the the bad machine comes and scans everybody's box and keeps trying root passwords. If it finds one, it stops and sends your machine's address, root username, and password to the system uh, that does successful logins from a clean subnet that isn't going to get blocked. Um, so that, you know, if later on your firewall or whatever adds their, the subnet to a blacklist or something, you're not going to lock out their system they use to actually log in. Then once they log in as root, they can fire off the infection, right? The root on your machine. So they can infect it and you become part of their uh, denial of service botnet. Right. So uh, after login is achieved, they use wget to uh, send an, uh, a request for a single file from one of their uh, malware hosts. So hold on. That means and then we they should install the rootkit. We have to now classify wget as a hacker tool. I mean, we have to wget hacker <coughs> tool. Remember, yes, the uh, hacker tool know. wget. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, l luckily, you know, not installed by default on BSD. Jeez. <laughs> I can't believe you managed to turn that into a BSD plug. That, sir, well, no, is no, impressive. No, no. Uh, it, it's actually, I, I'm more about it because, you know, it's the first thing people always try to use to download something and it doesn't work. And they're like, why doesn't BSD have wget? It's like, oh, we have the fetch command. It's similar. <laughs> or, you know, I think every one of my machines has wget installed just because customers complain <laughs> if it's not there. Yeah, I, 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 I just can't imagine. I, yeah. I would feel naked. I'd feel naked. Yeah. Curl's better anyway. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Anyway, uh, once the rootkit is installed, additional instructions are downloaded via a Zora encrypted file uh, from the command and control servers. The config file is largely constructed of a list of IP addresses that are uh, being denied and file names and files that should be deleted from the, Ooh, the infected systems. Okay. So they try to clean up after themselves, and they also block certain people from accessing the compromised machines. Uh, it's not clear whether those are people like the administrators of some of those machines, so I'm locking you out of your own machines, mm. uh, or if it's just other hackers or whatever. Uh, they say, at times, uh, this single attacker accounted for more than 35% of all total SSH traffic on the internet. <laughs> well, wow. How, how do they know yeah. that? Do you know how they measured that? Well, uh, oh, level working three. with level three and a yeah. couple other places that are yeah. huge backbones, that, uh, yeah. almost... Yeah, a huge portion of internet traffic goes through them. Yeah. So if they see it as 35% of their traffic, it's probably 35% of everybody's yeah. traffic. <laughs> um, so level three then started working to block the malicious traffic. They say, our goal uh, when confirming an internet risk is to remove it as broadly as possible. However, before removing anything from the internet, it's important to fully understand the impact that may have on more benign hosts. Right? We don't want to cut off a whole country's internet or something because of one guy doing this. Uh, so to do this, mm. we must understand more details of the attacker's tools and infrastructures. And so that's why they teamed up with Cisco in this case, because uh, Cisco had done the investigating and so on. Uh, so the graph you're showing now, yeah. the red, pink, and orange yeah. are the attack traffic, and the green is all other SSA traffic. Holy on the crap. And so you can see uh, <laughs> the red 
in pink there uh, is up to the point we've talked about in the story. Yeah. Uh, so as part of this process, level three worked to notify the appropriate providers regarding the change. Uh, so they were going to block this whole subnet from uh, all traffic from level three or through level three would not be able to reach that subnet. So they just stop all traffic trying to go back to that subnet. Um, so on March 30th, uh, the SSH psycho suddenly pivoted. The original uh, slash 23 network went from a huge volume of uh, SSH brute force attempts to almost no activity at all. And a new slash 23 network began uh, sending large amounts of SSH brute force uh, following the exact same behavior uh, as before. So once level three blocked their IP addresses, the end of the red spikes, uh, then the group a couple days later just pivoted and got a new block of IP addresses that weren't blocked. Of course, right? Uh, the new network and its traffic were more than 99% SSH traffic. Mm. Uh, you know, there was no legitimate traffic going through that subnet at all. It was just SSH brute forcing. Uh, the host serving the malware also changed to a different host, uh, and it was seen providing the same files as discussed uh, before as uh, in the DDoS rootkit. Uh, based on this sudden shift, immediate action was taken. Talos and Level 3 decided to remove the routing capabilities of both the old subnet and the new net block. Uh, removing, uh, the removal of these two net blocks induced another hurdle to the SSH psychos and hopefully slows their activity, if only for a short period of time. Uh, anyway, there's a great article posted uh, from both Cisco and Level 3 on their sides of the, the thing. I kind of combined the two in my coverage. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> The takeaway from level three was for those of you who still have Linux machines running SSHD on the open internet, uh, be sure to follow the best practices of disabling root, lo uh, root mm -hmm. login in your mm -hmm. SSHD config file. Mm -hmm. Disabled by default on most sane OSs, but not all. Uh, this step alone would stop this particular attack from being able to successful, uh, successfully exploit your machines in your environment. Uh, so, hmm. yes, you should never, ever, ever allow remote, uh, login as root remotely. Uh, so, you know, you SSH in as a regular user and then sudo to root or something. You should never, ever allow root login. Uh, and the fact that a bunch of Linux distros allow that by default is a bad is thing. Is there one? I was just trying to think of one that does. There's a couple. I honestly can't think of one. I'm I trying to think Cento's of like three. does, doesn't it? Uh-uh. All Amazon instances do. Um, of Linux. I'm, 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 <laughs> or no, they did the EC2 user thing, I think. Uh, the eventually. only exception I can think of are like... Uh, like there are uh, like testing images or like uh, like the chat room saying like Raspberry Pi images they'll sometimes have it. I don't think CentOS does. I think some images of CentOS do. Right. But all I, I know is the open SSH default is to disallow it. So yeah. anybody that has it enabled did it manually. I mean, I turn it on and everything, but yeah, I only have a root account, so that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. Hopefully, uh, this will send a clear message to the providers that are hmm. uh, allowing these types Sil of attackers to operate on their network. Silkroy in the chat room says uh, CentOS 5 and 6 do. Right. Uh, you know, hopefully, this will send a message to the networks that are you know, providing the transit and IP space to these attackers uh, you know, that if providers don't clean up their act and stop this kind of abuse from happening, uh, then they'll find large swaths of their IP space unreadable on yeah. the Internet, yeah, because level three and other big providers will cut them off. Uh, I, I noticed uh, level three contacted a bunch of other providers and got them to apply the same rule. Mm. Uh, so I noticed uh, I can't reach that IP block from my house either. Interesting. It, it stops like immediately at my ISP. It doesn't even make it onto the backbone at all. 
Look at them. So many people, uh, many of the bigger providers are now blocking that IP space. And uh, hopefully that means a lot less SSH brute force attacks. Hopefully. Although I, I didn't notice an especially high amount from them myself, but that was likely just because we block everybody after five attempts. Right? Mm -hmm. And so we would quickly saturate that whole IP space. Right. <laughs> Very good, Alan. Well, uh, that's a fascinating story. And it's good to see Cisco kind of uh, getting a good guy, attaboy Cisco story on the show for once. Yeah. Not too bad. All right. Uh, well, let me tell you about our friends over at iX Systems. If you'd like an attaboy in your organization, switch your company over to iX Systems for your hardware vendor where you'll get some of the best systems built around those Intel Xeon processors. And nobody's making CPUs like Intel these days for the server. And iX Systems has great deals, not just with Intel, but all of their hardware vendors. Really good relationships. And in some cases, really close physical location relationships where they can just walk over to the vendor and say, hey, let's talk about this, or hey, you're about to ship this drive. If, you, if you'd like, we'll just take the box and do, be the first to implement those. They've built some really cool systems around that. And then iX Systems wraps it all up with incredible white glove service, and they employ some of the best developers in open source technology. Mm -hmm. Alan, uh, I was just checking out the iX Systems site earlier today, as I do, and I noticed over on their What's New site, have you seen this? They posted up a uh, history of the FreeNAS and TrueNAS projects. Yes. Um, I've, I've told this some of the story before because uh, last October, I actually had the chance to interview uh, Olivier, who originally started the FreeNAS project back in uh, 2005. And then uh, eventually, uh, because his, his interest was always actually in routers and networking, not storage, uh, he was looking to, you know, get out of the project and not be the leader of the project anymore. And uh, some of the people wanted to convert it to Debian. I remember and, uh, that. Yeah. IX Systems saved the world by making FreeNAS stay FreeBSD. Yeah. And then very shortly after, it's like, oh look, ZFS. Now how, and now it's the best storage appliance. How, there now is. hold on, you skipped the most important part. How did they save it and make it stay FreeBSD? How did they do that? Well, they adopted the uh, the open source project and kept it going. Right. They they recognize that this. I mean, they what I thought. What I think is the part that is is impressive. There is the insight they had to recognize the importance of FreeNAS to keep it FreeBSD, and then to marry that later on with ZFS, ZFS or ZFS, and then to pair that in so seamlessly with their product line, so that way they have something that scales literally from your home office all the way up to the true NAS grade stuff, where you really have something that's iron for your for your for your enterprise network. I, I mean it. This is how iX Systems works at a, at, a, at a big picture, is everything like this. Long foresight, they're in it for the long term. This they have, they are brilliant like this. They are great strategists, and that's also why they attend a lot of the fest. You'll see them at Linux Fest Northwest this year. Yes, they get the, it. Uh, the, the, best, you know, the, top, the big picture in this article is them at another conference. Yeah, exactly, and they understand why that is. And you know, the people that they bring on are people they meet at some of these fests, right? And they come out, and these are people creating some of the core technologies. They're, build, they're building some of the best products in the industry around. If you're using another hardware vendor, trust me, Al and I, we've been there. We've done that. We've been this, in this game for a really long time. IX Systems does it best, and they're going to solve your problems. You can talk to them about what you want to accomplish. They will make sure your spec matches that. It's worth the call. Check it out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And uh, also, you can check out the uh, white paper. If uh, you need to grease those wheels a little bit up the chain, just pass this along. It's well done. They, they had uh, a company come in and do a really good job on this. And it's 11 key traits you should demand from your hardware provider. And I think it will help point out some of the differences and the gaps between them 
and IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. TechSnap, TechSnap, TechSnap. Do you like that? I feel like I need like a, if, if we had like a huge budget, like after I did like an ad, I would push a button and then like there'd be like all these sparks and transitions that would go off and like we'd have jingles for the sponsors and what do you uh, think, Alan? Have you seen the movie The Kingsman? No. No, you I have seen see Idiocracy, <laughs> though. Uh, all right, so uh, th- this next story is uh, what Chris could have done instead of podcasting. I mean, how to build a successful yeah. information security career. I like that right. title. Probably yeah, on the well, minds of is, people. It's a, is a question that we get asked by email every so often. Yeah. And uh, some of the things it answers actually are questions we get specifically, right? Rather than just saying, how can I be get into InfoSec? It's always like, what certifications should I get or do certifications matter and a bunch of other things. And so it covers all of those things in one good article. So I thought it was like the perfect way to a answer this whole big question and also answer all the little questions individually. Uh, so yeah, when people ask, you know, how do I get into InfoSec? How do I make this car- my career? I, you know, I, I've played with some pen testing and it was fun, but what, how do I actually make that my career? Yeah. It's like, well, myself, I'm not actually an InfoSec professional, you know, Chris did it for a while, but has not really been into it lately. Right. 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 And you know, I've never really worked in that space, so I don't have the answer. Luckily, someone who actually does work in this space finally wrote down all the answers. And this is good because, you know, it changes all the time and the industry's mm-hmm. really grown and there's a, it's a lot more complex than it used to be. Yes. And I love how uh, one of his first quotes is, one of the most important things for any InfoSec professional is to have a good set of inputs for news, articles, tools, etc. Mm. It's like, hmm, what is he describing there? Oh, it's like a, if somebody distilled all that information for you and, and kind of put it in this convenient video or you know, audio format for you to digest while driving to work. We should work with these guys and be like, hey, check out this show. We do this show. Yeah. In fact, there's a series of shows over on this network you might find interesting <laughs> and pertain to your interests. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, some of the basic steps that they went through. First was education, right? Information security is an advanced discipline, meaning you should... Uh, be able to get at least some areas of tech before going into it, right? You can't just start with InfoSec. You have to have some (laughs) base knowledge to work from. Yes. Uh, So they said uh, the most common ways that people get into InfoSec are system administration, networking, and development. Yeah. Because you kind of need all three of those skills to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's just uh, those currently, right, system and networking development are in the order of the most common entry points. That's how people get into it. I agree. Not necessarily the best way, right? Uh, the best would actually be learning development, then learning sysadmin, then learning networking. Although most people learn them the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, let's assume that you don't have any background in any of these yet. Then you need to start from nothing. And for that, you could start with you know university or trade school, which is what I did, or with certifications. Uh, you know, uh, the author recommends a four-year program in computer science, computer information systems, or information technology from any decent university. Uh, but you know, while you're doing it, you need to be doing everything else in this article, <laughs> right? You don't have to do them one at a time. You don't have to go to school for four right. years and then start doing the things in the article. Right. You can start doing all of these things at once. Right. Absolutely. Uh, what you learn in college depends on the class content and your interactions with others and the content uh, that you likely get many different places, right? Uh, hanging out and building stuff with a bunch of other smart people is really is the real benefit to university. You know, that's really the only reason I bothered going to the trade school I did. It was like, you know, being in a room with a bunch of people interested in the same stuff, 
uh, should be fun and interesting. Yeah, and same with why that's why fests are great and things like exactly. That. You know, if I if if you could just like live a, a conference for four years, yeah, you would, that be, would be so much better than university. But. You, you would absorb so much. You would. It yeah. is. It is. That is. Yeah. Wow. Imagine actually a university where there's like the lectures, kind of like the the presentations, the paper type presentations you get, except for you know strung out and kind of teaching you stuff, kind of more like uh, the tutorials and stuff that you get at at the BSD cons and so on. So that teaching style, and then like the second half of every day was like the hacker fest where you're actually like building stuff and doing stuff. You know, Alan, I not to be like a, a totally, totally obnoxious, but this wouldn't be a bad. I, I, so this whole fest thing has got me thinking about what, can, how can we take this experience where you meet up with people, you, you, you brainstorm, and then you, you, things happen, and you, you, but then you go apart for a really long time, and it'd be nice if we could have like micro doses of this, and that's why I created the Jupiter Broadcasting Meetup. We have 98 members now, which is awesome. And uh, we're going to do meetups in the Seattle area more frequently. And I, wanted, this is, I, want people to, I want people to get together. I want to talk about the stuff our shows cover, get the audience's input, and just have really good conversations because I feel like we might be able to create a little mini version of what happens at FES over time. And so meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. As we travel around, we'll schedule meetups in your area. Uh, and, you know, honestly, Alan, if you wanted to use it, too, when you traveled and have little mini meetups, you could. Yeah, um, um, I, I know we've talked previously, like, when I was uh, going to Malta, the one year, is like, if anybody else is going to be around. Yeah. Uh, and we yeah, could set up a, a meetup if you want. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I might do that. And there's currently one there for Linux Fest Northwest, and we'll be using it for future events as we travel or just in Seattle. And uh, maybe this would be a good way to meet people and, uh, you know, get that in-person exchange. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. That's kind of my tangential way to say that I really think that that's a really key point to underscore. And it's, I think, until you experience it, it's more important than you realize. At least for me, when I used to hear people like you and I talk about this stuff, I kind of would glaze over and be like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. You kind of have to experience it to understand yeah. the real value of, of having the in-person interactions. Right. Yeah, uh, and and you know there are different types of events that have more and less of the different parts, mm-hmm. and so it's you know really key to get the most of the parts you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I personally like uh, you know BSD can with the hacker lounge a little more of the of well what the um, the open BSD guys do, which was like a you know um, what do they call them hacker fest or whatever. That's not the right word. What do they call it? Hackathon. They have a hackathon where it's basically like a marathon of like two or three days of just working on stuff. Uh, you know, and then previously you have Dev Summits where it's, you know, uh, meetings and working on designs and stuff. And then you go away and build it when you're at home kind of thing. And a bunch of these other stuff. So I'm um, looking, uh, looking at the chat room. It looks like a lot of distros do ship uh, with root login because a lot of distros, they say it comes upstream that way. Um, that's just crazy to me. And, you know, of course, in an enterprise deployment, any image or interstandardized, you would change that anyways. So it's not like it's a right. huge but deal, but I could see a lot of people places leave it on. don't. Well, well also, they leave it on right? by accident, right? Yeah, exactly. So I anyway, mean, getting you, back to that, yeah. uh, the article. If you can't go to university because you can't afford it or whatever, you know, that's where you have trade schools or uh, certifications and so on to get that base of knowledge to, to get there. Uh, you know, any of these will do as long as you have the uh, curiosity and self-discipline to actually keep going and complete what you start. Uh, and so here are some of the basic areas you need to get from university, trade school, self-study, certifications, whatever, is networking, right? TCP, IP, switching, sure. routing, protocols, how that works. 
uh, system administration, right? Windows, Linux, Active Directory, hardening systems, all that kind of thing. And programming, right? Programming concepts, even just basic scripting, some object-oriented basics, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, you'll probably need to learn some databases as part of the system administration and programming stuff. That all rings pretty true to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you don't have a good foundation in all three of these, and ideally some decent strength in at least one of them, then it's going to be hard for you to progress past the early stages of an information security career. Mm-hmm. Right? The key at this point is not having major holes in your game uh, and being weak in any of these is a major hole. I agree. Uh, he says, so he's going to talk about certifications a bit later, but I mentioned that above, uh, you know, you can use certification study books for teaching guides. They're quite uh, good at showing you the basics. And, you know, he mentions... Uh, Security Plus, Linux Plus, CISSP, CCNA, MCP, Active Directory, CEH, etc. Uh, you know, these are there are a bunch of great books out there. You just have to Google for them, and you know, kind of show you the basics of a topic, and give you even if you're self-studying, kind of give you that that rundown of the things you need to look at and and play with. Actually, this is a great guide for self-studying, isn't it? You can use this yeah. to to sort of guide your self-studying course, couldn't you? Yeah, or even just, you know, most of the, if you Google and find a page about the CCNA book, it will list what the chapters are, which is a list of the topics you need to understand. Right. Uh, you know, so he says programming, right? Programming is important enough to mention uh, as its own heading. Uh, you know, be, let me be clear about something. If you are not uh, nurturing your programming skills, then you'll severely limit your information security career. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, even you don't have to be a programmer per se, but if you can't write shell scripts and stuff, you're not going to get anywhere. That's my, that's where, so that's where I agree. I think, you know, shell scripting and, and definitely understanding some of the core concepts of programming. Like for myself, I always got as far where I could open up and I could, I could read something and kind of understand what that is doing, that code is doing. And I never really, that's about as far as I ever got. And I never felt like that was really holding me back, but maybe now it would. However, at the same time, I'm somebody who's... parts of it you're trying to do, right? Like if you're actually looking at Figuring out how a zero day works, or or write finding right. the one and want yes. to write the proof of concept, yes. Yes. you're going to need slightly yes. more yes. Uh, high end programming. Skills, now that's but. why I'm like I'm considering you know going after uh, after Linux West Northwest to to pursue Ruby or Python or something like that, mm-hmm. and I just want to do that just just to go through the exercise of doing it. Really, not really much more than that, and just to tinker for mm-hmm. these reasons that he outlines here. Really, yeah, like but I say, wouldn't say can, like if you are weakest well, in the he programming area. says here. <clears throat> Uh, you can get a job without being a programmer. Yeah. You can even get a good job. You can even get promoted to management. You just won't ever be the elite level of InfoSec. I would agree with uh, that. Exactly. You know, if you can't build things, websites, tools, proofs of concepts, if you can't code, you'll always be dependent on others who can. So you want to learn to code. But yes, you don't have to be some expert kernel programmer right. or something like that. I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. This is a, pretty, this is a solid article. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he mentions... Um, that you can follow him on Twitter for as an extra source of news. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Uh, so then he talks about uh, the next step is building your lab, right? Oh, yeah. You need to be able to play with this stuff, and that's the best way to learn it, and you know, you kind of have to have this lab to do stuff. So having a lab is essential. It's actually one of the first things I ask when I'm looking at candidates during interviews, right? Does this person have a lab at home? Uh, you know, ask what kind of lab or network they have at home, uh, and if they reply that they either don't or whatever, then it's like, okay, thank you for your time. Next person, please. You know, the lab is where you learn, the lab is where you run your projects, the lab is where you grow as an InfoSec person. Uh, so you have a couple of options, right? You can have VMware or VirtualBox or whatever on a laptop or desktop, uh, you know, if you only have one machine or whatever. Or you can step further, we have some virtualization on a laptop or desktop that's now acts as a server, 
you know, you have more than one machine at that point. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you have some real server with VMware or something on it. Or you get VPS systems, right? You can go to DigitalOcean and spin up whatever OS you need to work on that mm -hmm. day. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think today, if I was doing this, DigitalOcean would be a game changer for me. Yeah. The way uh, I did this. He says, the recommended combination is, you know, a server at your house with VMware for whatever low latency and local tests yeah, and so on. Yeah, And uh, a VPS, if you have the money to let you yep. work on stuff remotely and have, you know, you, you SSDs, fast internet access. You also want to be able to just take resistance. a take a look from the outside in. Like, you want to do pen testing mm -hmm. from the outside into a network. And the best way to do that is you have to have something that is totally yours, that is not going to get shut down for running the software you need, and that you yep. can bang on something. And that's perfect exactly. for that. Uh, so things to do in your lab. Build an Active Directory forest, right? That's where you have more than one uh, Active Directory domain. Uh, each one's a tree, so yeah. if you have multiple trees, it's a forest. Yeah. Uh, run your own DNS server with Active Directory. Mm. Run your own DHCP server. Uh, have multiple zones in your network, uh, including a DMZ if you're going to serve outside services out of your house or whatever. Uh, you know, graduate to a real firewall as soon as possible. You know, uh, he recommends the Sophos, which used to be the Astaro, or, you know, we would recommend PFSense. Uh, oh, they even say that right here in the article, yes. You know, other good ideas are PF. Uh, doing this will require that you learn about routing and NAT and all sorts of the basics. You know, stand up a website using Windows and IIS. Stand up a website using, you know, your typical LAMP stack. Do you feel uh, like, well, he actually doesn't PHP, say. Build he a blog with WordPress. Does he actually, he doesn't actually say the LAMP stack. And the chat room is asking, do you feel yeah. like this is too Windows-centric at this point? Or? Um, well, if you're doing corporate-level InfoSec, that's right. a lot of what it's going to be. That's what I was thinking. If you're doing well, web you know, applications, PHP and WordPress, and but then but at you that could point, do PHP. it doesn't matter if it's Linux or Windows. I suppose. PHP on right. Apache, though, is different than PHP on IIS. Not as far as the vulnerability of the WordPress you're running. Right, yeah. If you're right. going, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're it, going if after. You're, yeah. If you're going after the web application, it matters less what OS right. and web server right. it uses. Yeah, 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 totally. It goes. It depends on what you're compromising. Yeah. Uh, and then the next point is, you know, have a Kali Linux installation always ready to go. So, you definitely know, he's definitely not ignoring Linux. And build an OpenBSD box and use it to create a, 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 a secure DNS server with DJB DNS. Right? Set up a proxy server so that you can be... Uh, able to monitor and intercept and play with the traffic as it's going in and out of your network, right? Uh, build and configure a local email server uh, that can send email to the internet, right? Use Postfix or QMail or SendMail or whatever. Definitely. So obviously, all those parts he's talking specifically about Linux. Uh, and well, he even mentions BSD, right? So he's definitely... You know, if, and, if you want to be an InfoSec, you should have an understanding yeah. of all of them. Well, and to be clear, I think the Active Directory one is extremely valuable. Uh, it's just so the chat room is pointing out that it seems like to make it a requirement may or may not be necessary. I think maybe it is. because you can, if, you, if you want to do InfoSec and deal with, you know, the malware that goes around in yeah. real enterprises, that's... Well, and also to point out, that the, the fun thing is, is there's some particularly fun scenarios that happen when you have an Active Directory and all the machines have one central user database and... Yeah, I mean, there's some specific kind of infosec magic there, and not, and then also I would mention they were, they were particularly complaining about the cost, as I think you can run Windows Server in a VM for like 180 days, or there's even a way to like yeah. Renew uh, Microsoft that. provides pre-built Windows Server VMs you can just download, uh, and then so there's probably a time limit or something. And you, uh, I think it's 180 days, but you can renew uh, that. Well, yeah, if you just start a fresh instance oh, I guess. of it. it oh, yeah, yeah, it of course you just blow it away. Separately. You're using it for testing anyways. Yeah. Or yeah. snapshot it, and then you can just revert back, and it doesn't know the difference. <laughs> oh, wow. um, 
Uh, they provide the images as Hyper-V, yeah. but there's a tool, and I converted it, and I run it in VirtualBox. Yeah. I use one on my laptop, actually. I set it up. Um, I was uh, doing a demo of the Fudu security appliance for uh, some people at the college while I was there, and I needed a Windows server to show how it can intercept a Windows RDP session securely and uh, do username switching. Cool. So, you know, your contractor or student or whatever that's logging in that you want to monitor logs in with their username and password. And when they actually log into the machine, they're logging in as a different user with a password they don't know, so they can't ever fiddle with it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyway, uh, you know, so those are just some of the basics. Most people are, you know, hardcoded infosec will have done, you know, a list of dozens or hundreds of times and uh, tons of different things going on in their lab. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff you need in your lab is, you know, virtualization makes it easier. You don't have to have... 20 computers anymore you can create 20 vms and turn them up and down as you need right you don't have to have enough ram to run them all at once you usually only need a couple at a time mm-hmm. you know uh so yeah the next thing is you are your projects hmm. right you build stuff and that's basically your resume hmm. it's really you know you can claim that you know how to set up a website with this and whatever but you know if you want to prove that you're actually good at something you have to do a project uh you know they're uh, this is where your book knowledge stops and your creativity begins. You always need to be working on some project, right? As a beginner or even an advanced practitioner, nobody should ever ask you what you're working on and you say nothing. You know, <laughs> even if you're between projects, <laughs> you mentioned the last one and what the next one is, right? Uh, you know, most people, if they're passionate about this stuff, will have a bunch of them, uh, you know, that are they're kind of juggling all at once. Uh, you know, projects tend to cross significantly into the programming side, Although sometimes it's just research and network scanning or whatever, you know. Uh, the HD Moore guy over at uh, Rapid7, right? They started that project where they're just scanning everything on the internet to find patterns and stuff. Mm-hmm. And all his UPnP work, not much programming in there. It was all just looking at what's actually out there and what's happening. Right. There's a lot of just research and legwork. Probably some scripting. Yep. And, you know, while you're learning, don't worry too much if someone is already doing something beforehand. It's fun to create, right? Even if the, there's already a tool out there, writing your own helps you better understand the process involved, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, if, you, and if it's open source, and, you might be you able to contribute. you get the thrill of going from concept to completion with the code, right? Yeah, and, and honestly, if the source is open, you may be able to contribute down the road to the project that's already exactly. going, something like that. So there are sometimes benefits that, uh, or sometimes you, you attract people to your project and you end up working on something else together down the road. So there's things yeah. you don't even expect. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, I've, that's how almost every open source project starts, right? One guy building a tool for himself to solve some problem he had, and then 10 other people are like, I need that too. And then it just explodes, and now <laughs> it's the latest open source greatness. Yeah. Right? Uh, the key still you're trying to nurture here is your ability to identify a problem with the way things are currently done, and then come up with a solution and create the tool. Right? That's kind of what you're doing with the project, is identify the problem, create a solution, and then build it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't think about how many projects you have. Uh, if you approach it as uh, that way, it'll just be artificial. Instead, focusing, uh, focus on interesting problems, insecurity, and let the ideas and projects come to you naturally. Yeah, be motivated. Yeah. Then he says, have a presence, right? Have a website, a blog, a Twitter account, right? People aren't going to have heard of you if you don't. Right, and you need a place to talk about your research and post. And, and stuff. when people Google your name, a place to land. Exactly. Maybe better than your Facebook stream. Right. So you, now, now you've done a few projects, and it's time to let people know uh, about them through your 
brand platform. <laughs> oh, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts a little bit. You know, um, you should have a brand. It can be low key if you want. It doesn't have to be big and splashy and corporate. It just, you know, you don't have to make a company around it. Just be like, hi, I'm me and I'm doing this interesting research. Yeah. And here's my thoughts on it and here's my work in progress or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're introverted or you feel like, uh, it's boastful to talk about what you're doing. You kind of got to stop that, right? If you don't talk about what you're doing, how is anybody supposed to know about it? Right? Uh, Interviewation and you know false humility will not do. Uh, do good work and be willing to talk about it. You know, right? you need a website. Maybe it's just a blog. Whatever. Uh, the point is that you need a place to present yourself. If you have your own domain, it looks better than if it's just on a blog spot. But whatever. Uh, you know, you should have an about page saying who you are, good contact information, so when people see your work and want to talk sure. about it, they can get to you, sure. a list of your projects and things you've worked on, and again, you know, if it's your blog, then that's the place you do it, and whatever. Uh, you know, ideally, you'll have a good name. You know, firstnamelastname.com is probably ideal because, you know, Google biases towards that for search results, but, you know, maybe that you doesn't because your name's common or whatever. You know, try to avoid some snarky nickname or something that's going to be hard to identify or not look good to clients in the future or whatever. Right? Like like Captain Buzzkill. Yeah. <laughs> right. You want this domain to remain the same until you die or get taken <laughs> into the rapture or get uploaded into the collective. Well, you got app fail, right? Didn't you have app fail.com? That's yeah, a good I, I have app fail.net. I dot net. That's a good also, one. The cloud is a lie. That, com, so. That's a great one. Yes. Just hang on to that one, Alan. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Pick something good, uh, you know, it's your brand and your brand matters. And he talks a little bit about Twitter. You know, you don't want to be iHacksU42 as your username, right? You want, you know, uh, permanent personal infrastructure. You know, it's basically the same thing about email addresses as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a great one about having your own domain is getting an email you control. And Even so if on. you just use Gmail, get a domain and forward or something. Yep. So uh, certifications, this is the big one, right? Yeah. Uh, so many people always ask, you oh, know, yeah. are information security certificates really worth it? And which one should I get? Certs, certs are like one of our, got to be one of our yes. top four or five questions. So, uh, good question. I have answers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Certifications matter. And so do college degrees. And so does experience. And so does anything else that people think matters. It all matters. Uh, so let me put this plainly. Things have the value that other people place on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Certifications don't have any inherent value. They're worth precisely as much as people value them. If employers are asking for them in places where you want to get hired, then they matter and you should get them. If the places where you want to get hired don't care at all about them, then they're entirely worthless. Right? It's that simple. Yep. If if somebody's going to be impressed by the certification, get it. If they're not, then it's probably a waste of money and time. Know your target. Uh, but, to, you know, for beginners, yes, they, they do matter. Uh, so which certifications to get? You know, at the beginning level, he mentions, you know, A+, plus, Network+, plus, Linux+, plus, Security+, plus, and then with a disclaimer, no, I don't work for CompTIA. <laughs> but those are just easiest ones to get as far as actual availability of the exams at testing centers and so on. They're, you know, kind of ubiquitous. It's easy to find that exam and so on. Uh, you know, he's not saying that these certs are tremendous value, Right, they're kind of novice beginner type things. So they're recognized, but, though. Yeah, the, you know they're definitely recognized and so on. And they show uh, that you've completed something. 
Yeah, and that you can, and yeah. Uh, and if you have all those certifications, you have a good understanding of the basics. Right. Now, for advanced certs, uh, I like to explain InfoSec certs like this. Uh, you need your CII or CISSP. Uh, you should get an audit cert for CISA or CISM, and you should get a technical cert like SANS. So you want one from each of the categories, basically. Uh, the the generic one, the audit one, and the uh, technical cert. That sounds that sounds about in line with how it used to be. Yeah, basically, uh, once you have four years of experience in InfoSec, you should uh, have your CISSP. It's the closest thing to a standard baseline that our industry has. It's actually better than a computer science degree in a lot of organizations because, you know, a lot of time, you, what you learn at university is completely different yeah. uh, than what somebody learned at some other one, whereas the certification is standardized. Uh, you know, uh, next, you want to cover your audit space, and that's where you know your CS, CISA or CISM uh, come from. That sounds dirty. And finally, uh, and finally, you want to get some more technical certifications. You know, like there's GSEC, uh, which is surprisingly thorough, uh, or you know GCIA, GPEN, GWAPT, uh, based on your preferences and what you know areas you're interested in. Uh, but um, you can just get the GSEC. That would be a good way of rounding out your uh, food groups. <laughs> It's for a well-balanced diet. Yeah, I uh, says uh, I actually recommend doing the CISSP first and then the other ones. Hmm. Uh, you know, CISSP is the king, and then you get your uh, technical out of the way, and then the audits just to round it out or whatever. I feel like now we need to timestamp this, and then from now on, when we get this question, we'll just send them the link <laughs> to this timestamp yeah. in the show and say we've yeah. answered your questions here. Yeah, and they say, uh, there's a ton of other specialized certs and in information security. The offensive security folks yeah. put up uh, some great ones. The okay. European penetration testing certs are excellent, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing I was uh, surprised you didn't mention on is mentorship. That seems like if you can land well, a mentorship. We're, we're, we're only halfway through the stuff. Oh, oh, okay. So next, networking with others. Oh, First step, find a mentor. Okay, there you go. Okay. Uh, he says, okay, <laughs> before I continue, keep in mind that these sections aren't necessarily to be done one at a time. You can be doing all of them at once. Uh, right, so so now you have some education, you've got a lab going, you're working on some projects, you've got a website and Twitter and so on. Uh, cool, now you need to reach out and talk to some other people, right? Uh, again, you can and should be doing all these things at once. Uh, you know, watch who's coming to your website, watch Twitter for interesting interactions, reach out to other people, start conversations, uh, go to where they'll be... Uh, where those people will be and interact with them in person, person, right? There's Black Hat, DEF CON, and, you know, he lists a whole list of other uh, security conferences. And, you know, find a mentor. Uh, this one's always worth its own section. Uh, you know, find someone who has a style that you like and ask them to mentor you, right? You can email them, call them, whatever. Do your research beforehand. Make sure you've done the stuff in the right up first, right? Uh, you don't want to come to them without having put in the effort first and, and proving that you're worthy of their time to mentor them or mentor you, uh, you know, make it as easy as possible for them to help you. And you're not likely to be turned down. You know, if you're interested in the same area as them, you know, it'll probably just get them excited about it more as well. You know, uh, he says others, uh, willing to help others who are eager to work and are, uh, just getting started. And, you know, he mentions internships as well as a good way to, do stuff, edit blog posts, sift through data, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then he mentions what we were just talking about, conferences, right? Go to conferences, speak at them, everything. Uh, 
you know, you go to conferences, it's a great way to see what other research is being done, right? You hear the talks and the paper presentations that other people are doing, uh, you know, catch up with your InfoSec friends or people you've only talked to on Twitter, you can meet in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, as you keep going, eventually you present your own ideas and research, right? If you had some idea and no one else is talking about it, then you propose a paper and then, oh, look, now you're accepted and you're speaking at the conference. And guess what? That looks good. Yes, exactly. Uh, is it, you know, for, for number one, you don't really have to go to the conference. Most talks, especially really good ones are made available immediately That's afterwards. That's true. Uh, some of them even on videos now. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't really help with number two, which is meeting the people in person. It makes a big difference. You know, uh, most InfoSec veterans after, you know, being on the job for 10 plus years are mostly going to conferences just to see their friends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, the talks are basically serve as a setting to do uh, for doing so rather than the centerpiece, especially since you can just get the talks online. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot more value to the conference rather than necessarily what the conference actually provides itself. Uh, but for newcomers in the field, it's an invaluable way to learn about infosec culture and how things are done. Uh, you know, you'd also recommend considering if you're going if you're just starting out, you should probably go at least once to DEFCON. It's basically a parody of itself at this point. Uh, but that's just because it's so popular, right? It's a victim of his own success. Yeah. You know, before DEF CON every year, there's Black Hat, which is a bit more professional and expensive, uh, but it's still decent for new people to attend. You know, veterans in the field are starting to avoid some of these uh, big conferences because they've got too big and are said going to smaller ones that have more of the field of the old DEF CON. Hmm. You know, higher quality talks, smaller venue, more intimate discussions, being able to actually see the people that are at the conference. And it's because there's, you know, if there's, 8,000 people, how do you get to talk to many of them? It is too many. I mean, it's almost too many when it's when it's almost too... Th- I mean, almost over... When you get over 1,000, it starts to get to be too many. Well, yeah, for sure. You know, uh, most of the conferences I've had the most fun at have been like under 300 people. Yep. And they mentioned, you know, DerbyCon, ShmooCon, ThoughtCon, CactusCon, QSecCon. Honestly, that was part of my, uh, my thought process behind the meetups is like, well, some of the best conferences have been like the, the 100 people conferences. Yeah, so. or, you know, even just 25 people if it's the right people. He says, in addition to these traditional types of conferences, you should be signing up uh, for your local, you know, OWASP chapter or whatever, you know, user group or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, start by just attending the meetings and soaking everything up, and then you can volunteer to help out or, you know, give one of the little presentations they have or whatever. Uh, you might want to do some of the, like, B-sides, which are these uh, kind of mini-conferences. You know, uh, B-sides are basically the alternative to major conferences in your given area. The biggest ones are obviously in Las Vegas and so on, but they, the B-sides are kind of a, the smaller things. But the bottom line for conferences, start local. You know, it's cheaper and easier to do. Uh, participate. Uh, try to give your own talks as soon as you're ready to do so. Uh, you know, if you've never been to one of the big conferences, do it maybe just once. Uh, but the, the smaller popular conferences like DerbyCon, ShmooCon, et cetera, are really considered the best ones. And... Uh, most of them at this point, it's, uh, you know, a sliding bar that moves from time based on popularity and exclusivity and so on. But remember that the primary benefits of cons is networking with people and seeing your friends uh, in the InfoSec setting. Yeah. Or well, for any conference, for any setting. Yeah. If it's exactly. Linux Fest, it's great for, I mean, if you're exactly. in the IT field, a lot of these conferences are good. If you're in the, yes. in the IT field in general at all. And then uh, the next step is mastering your professionalism. Mm. Right. Uh, so... Now you've entered the advanced arts. This is stuff that will take you 
out of the middle of the tech arena and land you in guru and leadership land. You know, professionalism is the packaging that you use to present yourself, right? Failing at this means your content will to be world class and you'll still go unnoticed or be passed over because of, you know, that. So the first step is, he says, dependability, right? Don't make commitments you can't keep. Don't miss meetings. You know, don't be late. Don't miss deadlines. Don't, you know, uh, make promises you can't keep. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, we know stuff comes up, but, you know, if, if, that integrity all the time, then you, add some extra time. You have to constantly demonstrate integrity because yeah. there's so much trust placed in the InfoSec position. You're, not only are are they trusting all of your recommendations and your consultations, but if you do any kind of actual testing, they're trusting you not only to sort of be gentle and not decimate their network, which happens sometimes, but uh, also they're trusting you to sort of keep your word that you're not going to go blabbing it off to competitors of what you found. It's it's a very vulnerable position for a business to be in, so you have to be able to constantly demonstrate integrity. Yep. Uh, he mentions wardrobe, uh, you know, saying get some high-quality jeans and so on. Uh, you know, you probably want a good suit for when it's needed, but you don't need it all the time. You know, uh, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that part. <laughs> no kidding. But, uh, you know, speak concisely, right? Be clear and crisp with your verbal communications. Don't linger on points. Uh, get them clearly and uh, stop so the other person can actually reply. That's probably a problem I have. I talk too much. <laughs> uh, then he mentions uh, tighten up your writing. Mm. So he mentions he actually has a, a separate complete post on business writing. Yeah. Uh, that he recommends you check out. and But also learn to present, right? Public speaking is... a uh, a beast for many people, but if you can't present, you'll be severely limited in how far you can advance, right? If you can't give the the talk at the conference, then you can't really get your idea into right. everybody else's hands. And right? to be, you know, unfortunately, and on a big part, how comfortable you are discussing that subject, uh, it conveys like sort of like how comfortable you are with the subject matter and therefore how much the audience trusts what you're saying. So when you're more relaxed in your presentation, they're more likely to be engaged and trust what you're saying. And when you're super nervous, you might, you know, they sort of get more skeptical about the subject matter you're covering. Exactly. Uh, and he recommends uh, Toastmasters for anyone who has uh, issues with this. Uh, and I've seen that recommended by other people as well that it said it's helped them. So um, this has come up actually. I was reading. Um, Michael Lucas put up a post. Uh, he's on the board that reviews the talks that get submitted to BSD Can, and he kind of talked about what they look for uh, when they're going through the list of speakers to see who they're going to accept, and that you know uh, if you have a history of, of being bad at presenting, and you've done Toastmaster, make sure you mention that uh, so that they consider that because you know if you have a reputation of, for being a bad speaker, they might decide not to mm. uh, accept your talk the next time. So if you've so if you've had a problem and solved it, you yeah. need to deal with that as Let well. Let people know. But he said, these skills magnify everything you do, right? The more professional you look, the more accepted your work is going to be. Uh, right? And you'll be surrounded by people who are woefully unskilled in one or more of these areas, and so you'll always kind of stand out as, as the better person. And then finally, uh, understanding the business. Or the business. Uh, this is the part that many technical people don't quite get. Uh, the biggest point here was uh, businesses want to qualify risk so they can decide how much they need to spend on mitigating it, right? If it's not very likely this is going to wrong, they might just risk it and not spend any money on it. But if it's very likely this will go wrong, how badly will it go wrong? How much will it cost I, if it does go wrong yeah. versus how much it's going to cost to fix it? I think I'm, I'm skeptical. I think I wonder if some people just don't, if some people in the IT field 
don't have the ability to get this part. Uh, yeah. I like uh, one of the ways that I think I was able to succeed is I very much was able to go in and look at this is your business process, and what I was able to do is two things. This is how technology. This is how technology is a tool for this business to make money. And this is where, if that tool breaks down, the business loses money. And those are the critical components to understand about how a business utilizes technology. And if you say, okay, this piece, this cog right here that makes like all of these things. So let's take, for example, a client of mine. He had this really old fax server. And this really old fax server was responsible for receiving all incoming doctor's recommendations and all incoming requests for records and faxing out all prescription orders. That's what this one old machine did. And of course, guess what? Super vulnerable to attack. And it's on the internet. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a complete disaster. Now, this guy, he is so famous for not spending money that when he had a tour group coming through town, and his office was in an old mansion, uh, he had just the front of the building painted because he didn't want it to look bad. But he wasn't going to paint the sides or the back. No, no, no. So we had them just paint the front. That's the kind of money this guy's willing to spend. So when it comes time to spend money on some IT, you can kind of guess where he's willing to go with that. So I had to very much say, look, this piece right here is going to cost you this. It's going to interrupt your business like this. And if you don't understand it from their perspective, how that all works, you're not going to be able to sell them on this kind of stuff. And that is, I think, the failing we have had for so long now to why people are not investing in information security. Because so many people in our positions, in the IT positions out there, are failing to successfully communicate to the people above them the business costs, the business risks, and the business advantages. And because they are unable to translate IT to business speak, it goes unaddressed, and they just say, well, it's too much money, it's more expensive to run the risk than it is to fix it. You know, he says, uh, you should be prepared to speak about how much risk is present in dollars, uh, how much money it'll take to mitigate that risk in various different ways, right? You need, there's always more than one solution to the problem and they'll have different costs. And then how much money it'll cost to mitigate, um, and what, if any, residual risk will remain, right? A lot of times, even after you mitigate it with, by spending a bunch of money, there's still a chance things will go wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> but being able to say, you know, if we don't do anything, this will happen. And if we do this cheap way, the leftover risk will be moderate. But if we go fuller and solve the problem this way, then the leftover risk will be very minuscule. Mm -hmm. He says, in short, try to have numbers for things and try to think in terms of risk and mitigation versus, you know, specific vulnerabilities and other security details. Because the business people aren't going to understand that and they're just going to ignore you. Mm -hmm. uh, then this last one is, is, or second to last one is very important, right? Having passion, right? Up until now, you're talking about tangible things. You know, let's talk about some of the other key things, right? Curiosity, interest, and passion. 90% of being successful at something is getting 100,000 chances to do it, right? Uh, you get your chances by actually showing up, by spinning up that B, uh, by uh, spinning up that VM, or by writing the proof of concept, or writing that blog post, uh, and you have to do it consistently over a number of years, and that's where the success comes from. It's not yeah. just an all or nothing thing. Yeah. You have to just keep doing it, yeah. and and in by doing that, you prove that you're worthy of of getting the success. And we can tell you when you say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to do this one thing once a week for a couple hours every week." How hard could that be? Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard. Basically, there's two different ways to have this. It's, you know, one is an inhuman amount of self-discipline enables you to keep working at it. Or more likely, you know, a deep innate passion compels you to want to do it. Yeah. 
right? And that's that's basically the difference you can tell in, in different types of people. Some people are, are good at something, but they don't care about it to the same level as other people. And, you know, while they might be reasonably good at their job or whatever, they're never going to quite excel into that, that top bracket because they just don't care. Right. They don't, they don't live and breathe it. Yeah. I know that many people can maintain that first one, the self-discipline for, for 10 years, right? It's hollow. It's empty. There's, there's types out there, but they often burn out or move on because, you know, eventually you just can't have that much self-discipline. Right. Uh, you know, most who stay for InfoSec for many years, uh, who are very successful, achieve success because they're powered by, you know, that internal molten core that's never going <laughs> to cool off. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're up late at night writing a tool or a blog post, not because it's, you know, the scheduled time, but because they're physically unable to stop doing it. Right? You can't stop thinking about it. You just got to get it right. done. And you have to ask yourself, does this describe you? Right. Maybe exactly. it doesn't. And it's okay if it doesn't. But if it, right. if it doesn't, then maybe you have to... You should find the thing that does yes. and do that. Yes. Because otherwise you're going to waste, you know, four years going to university for this and then find out two Thank years you. later that that wasn't what you wanted to do. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, ideally, someone uh, wishing to succeed in the world of InfoSec should have a lot of self-discipline. It's important. It's respectable. You just need to have uh, the passion as well. Uh, but you know, if you truly want to thrive and uh, do so without uh, having a frozen soul, mm-hmm. yeah, you should be pulled by passion rather than pushed by discipline. Totally agree with that. And then lastly, he says becoming a guru is like, you know, at this point, you've got your ton of experience. You're in your 30s or even 40s now. Things are looking good. Uh, what does the top tier look like? What are the top information security people able to do that others are not? Uh, first of all, they have all the stuff we've already talked about. Uh, and then they have some other special qualities that set them apart. First is financial knowledge, right? The ability to handle budgets, understand startup financing, make purchasing decisions, and so on. They have management expertise, right? Managing projects and managing people are two distinct things. And people uh, at this tier are good at both of those. They have an extensive network, right? Many at this tier know a good percentage of the major players in InfoSec and business. You know, when you're working on a project and you come into an area that's not your area of expertise, knowing and having a relationship with the person whose area it is to be able to ask them to, to help you with something is kind of a, the big difference, mm-hmm. right? And that's why going to the conferences and building that network is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he mentions dress and etiquette and yeah. golfing for some reason. Well, I guess it's more <laughs> yes. like schmoozing, right? Yeah. Uh, then advanced education, right? Having a master's degree uh, um, at this tier is good. Uh, it's not essential, but many top tier positions do look for traditional university degree as a checkbox qualification and so on. If you're, if you're going for you know the top level, then maybe that makes sense. Uh, media savvy, right? Being trained and being capable of speaking with the media about various topics. Hmm. You know, uh, the people that can actually be interviewed on the news and get their point across and not just come off as, you know, that IT jerk or whatever uh, can kind of make the big difference there. Uh, yeah, I mean, that seems like if you get the chance and you could and you were good at it, that is a, such an opportunity to get your name out there. But uh, yep. it seems pretty pie in the sky. A little bit. Well, th- this is this is not how to start. This is what to do when you've already been doing it for 10 years to, to kind of make that last step, right? Uh, and you talk about, you know, the tech slash business hybrid, being able to do both things. They're, you know, they're business people and they're tech people. There's not many people that are really good at both. Uh, and then creativity, right? Uh, 
that's kind of what's going to set you apart is being able to come up with the things that other people haven't yet. But anyway, in summary, he says he hopes that the article is helpful and that it basically kind of answers the question of, you know, what do I have to do to get started? And then how do I advance through all the steps to, to get to the end? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's sort of a resource that I hope we remember in a while because we get this question so much into the show mm-hmm. that this is definitely going to probably suffice as the, the definitive TechSnap answer to how you get into this. Now we just have to remember 209, everybody, to help us reference to that. Yep. Uh, and, and then uh, I had a, another link that basically didn't fit in the roundup because it's already really full. <laughs> uh, and so I kind of tacked it on here because it's related. Uh, this is a webinar that SANS is going to do. They're one of the places that run the certifications that we've been talking about. Uh, they're doing a free webinar, and it's uh, how to avoid a phone call from Brian Krebs, <laughs> the basics of intrusion detection and prevention. <laughs> okay. And I thought just because of the Krebs angle on it alone, it was worth mentioning. Yeah, that is pretty good. But it talks about uh, how to assess uh, potential security risks, how to detect network anomalies, and how to defend against shifts uh, in adaptive threats. Ooh, I like that term. And then uh, they'll learn about, you know, discovering intrusions versus indicators and sensor placement and all the stuff and how to deal with false positives and everything you want to know about uh, that fun stuff. Alan, can I tell you about something fun? Sure. That's our next sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and bring our promo code of absolute and total knowledge. That is Snap Ocean. Snap Ocean, one word, lowercase, will get you a $10 credit over at the fantastic DigitalOcean. What? You don't know what DigitalOcean is? Holy camoles. Let me tell you about DigitalOcean. I think you'll be pretty impressed, especially if you are a TechSnap audience member. This is right up your alley. Check this out. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. This is nuts, because you're going to get a super powerful, fast root server up in the cloud that you get an HTML5 console to, and obviously it's going to have a public IP address, and there's all kinds of things. Well, it's yours. You can do anything you want with it. And you get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 per month. I said $5. I know, you paid more for that for that burger, that really awful, horrible, salty burger, or that coffee with the, with the milk and the... Uh, did you try the s'mores coffee? I did too. Yeah, that costs more than a, do- a droplet for the entire <laughs> month. I know, right? It's funny when you yep. think about it like that, but it's true. Uh, and they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. So you're, they're going to have a spot where, and in fact, they have a new one coming online. And so in 55 seconds, you'll get the server set up, less than $5 a month. You're going to get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. And then on top of all of that, like the cherry, that delicious, delicious cherry on top, is the interface that you use to manage all of it. The DigitalOcean control panel is super intuitive. And power users can replicate that super awesome functionality on a much wider scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API. And there's so many great apps in the community already built around this awesome API that you can take advantage of right now or you can write your own. So you've got the amazing dashboard. You've got the incredible pricing. You've got the fantastic performance. You've got the SnapOcean promo code. So you can try it out. You can try out that $5 rig, two months for free. SnapOcean, you just apply it to the account. You got all of that. Then you got the fact that they just revved the brand new version of their API. Version 2 just came out of beta. They just finally got it out there, and it's even better than before. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And on top of all of that, they have truly some of the best tutorials out there. So you can really get advantage. You can take advantage of your droplet. Uh, so here's a couple I have up right, up right now. How to, how to deploy Ruby 
a Rails app with a passenger and Nginx on Ubuntu 14.04. There's a guide for mm-hmm. that. How to install Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana 4 on Ubuntu 14.04. Ooh, that could be really handy. I have a droplet to manage some of that stuff, and that's really cool. Or how to install Django Web Framework on Ubuntu 14.04. Right there, they have all that. They've also got tutorials on here setting things up on FreeBSD because they've got FreeBSD servers. Mm-hmm. Installing an XMPP server on Ubuntu. That could be really handy if you want a private chat server. What a great use. Go use SnapOcean and try it out for $10 a month. Set up your own uh, XMPP server with a guide right here on DigitalOcean. Gosh, that is so, so nice. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean when you check out. And a real big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. DigitalOcean.com. SNAPOcean. Hey, Alan. You? I heard a rumor that you did another BSD podcast this week. Unbelievable. It's like you do them every single week, like for like 84 weeks now, because Mm -hmm. episode 84 of BSD Now hit the web just a little bit ago. It's about the halfway point in the TechSnap show, so if you want to go download the HD version of the latest episode, you can do it now. Episode 84, package remove, free BSD update. (gasps) No. Uh, yeah, we were talking about packaging the base system, uh, and so being able to use package upgrade instead of oh, okay. uh, and upgrade it that way. I thought you were saying you wouldn't be able to do that anymore. I thought that's what the title meant. <laughs> I was like, no. Well, that's probably the eventual goal is to replace FreeBSD updates kind of slow, clunky process mm. with a much nicer, faster Ooh. one. Hmm. I will have and to then watch re- and find out. three-way merge for config files will be nice as well. I will definitely then check out that episode of uh, BSD Now and figure out what that's all about. Episode 84 good stuff alan and don't forget episode 140 of unfiltered for that uh, breakdown of that stone interview we discussed earlier but alan with the news all done that means it's time for the tech snap feedback Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting site or even better. Starting thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com like BizRomat did our first email today and he says he needs a data delivery syncing over the WAN solution. And it starts like this, Alan. I have a good-sized chunk of data, about 120 gigabytes, that I need to mirror across 22 physical locations. Most of the data consists of Pixie Netboot images, OS, and third-party software with updates, and um, deployment images, things like of this nature. I maintain a master server at our central office and a replica server at each remote site, and it checks in and r-syncs the diffs on a nightly basis. The majority of this data is very static. Most changes are very small in size and are easily distributed across the WAN using our 100-15 meg connection. However, the problem arises when there are larger changes that need to be synced, like maybe a new 15-gigabyte deployment image. It seems that when you multiply any number by 22, it turns out to be a lot. This, yep. set me, yeah, this sets me up for what essentially amounts to 300 gigabytes of uh, or plus uh, upload that needs squeezed through our 15 megabit pipe to remote locations. Currently, I use traffic shaping to limit the impact on our users by trickling out to remote sites. And while it works, it does impact performance and makes it slow to respond to patches and upgrades. I was hoping to find a better solution that doesn't involve the cost of bigger pipes at our central office. I was considering using some kind of offsite storage provider or VPS, push the data one time from the CO to the remote locations, and take advantage of bandwidth at the provider's data center, allowing the remote sites to sync at full speed. But when I began pricing, I realized, yes, most of the time this would be an inexpensive way to deliver the goods. 
However, since most service and storage providers also charge based on transfer, it could become an expensive surprise if there was a sudden need to push up a very large change. This is what happened in a couple of instances. Most recently, when a vendor's certificate expired, they needed to reassign all of their update packages and distribute new copies, 80 gigabytes. I also, I also consider grouping the sites by cascading the sync by having some sites pull from other, other peers rather than the CO, but this seems like it would be more difficult to manage. What haven't I considered? Is there a provider with lower transfer costs? Insert obligatory praise here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple different uh, things for that. Uh, obviously, yeah, uh, a server to do it probably makes the most sense. Um, and you can also, at that point, consider ZFS uh, and its replication rather than rsync because it's block-based rather than file-based. Uh, it means that it can detect changes of just a couple of blocks in a file more cleanly than, than rsync. And it mostly means that with that much data, rsync is going to have to read all 120 gigabytes of data off the disk and off the remote server to make sure they're the same as it does it. Whereas with ZFS, it just knows, oh, that server was last updated yesterday, so here's every block that's changed since yesterday, and it just fires it out the pipe. Hmm. And its um, ZFS replication is unidirectional. It goes from the sender to the receiver and doesn't require any data to come back at all. It's a one-way pipe. Um, and because of that, it means that um, it also doesn't suffer from bandwidth delay product type problems oh. uh, because you don't have to you know, deal with that. Uh, and then, yeah, so server, um, the bandwidth pricing really shouldn't be that bad. I'm, um, Amazon's uh, confused their pages and I can't find the thing I'm looking for anymore. There it is. Um, so, yeah, uh, so most of the times you run a dedicated server at like the 150 to $200 range, it's going to include 10 terabytes of bandwidth. And so your 300 gig update shouldn't kill you. Or even, you know, an 80 gigabyte update times 22 servers is only 1.8 terabytes and is so it, isn't going to kill you. Is it ridiculous to consider something like BitTorrent Sync for a solution like this? Because um, that could probably work. Then the machines would sync between each other. And it's also, at you know, it does, you know, changes just that, in that the files. slightly less controlled. Yeah, it does, doesn't he, it? He probably doesn't want the bandwidth to all kind of come from everywhere. You can put uh, some limiters but, on, mm -hmm. on the different... But yeah, there's, you're right. It would not be fully controlled, but it would be something... And now with BitTorrent, you'd have to pay for it too, but maybe that's good because you get support. Um, I don't know. You know, because the nice thing is, is the machines would then sync to each other. And so in his case, if he had it up to one, that one then would help the others. It, uh, it, you know, the right. one way, reason I mentioned is because it's how I distributed um, three gigabytes of uh, files for Unfilter 140 last night for absolutely free. I just, I just to to to, to couple of maybe 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 like a hundred people. I don't know. I just sent out three gigs worth of files, and and the great the beauty is is I put it on. I, all I had to do was just put it in a directory, and then the next person that got it, if they became a seeder, and then the next person became a seeder, and by the time the fourth or fifth fifth person gets in the swarm, it, they're they're pulling down those files at at the max of their connection, and nobody's there's there's no hosting cost at all, which is it's pretty compelling for that. Right, and that's basically. On a, uh, because of his distribution model of being one to many like that, uh, it probably actually end up using more bandwidth to use BitTorrent Sync because of the protocol overheads there. Uh, because there's never going to be someone late arriving that's going to want to sync all that data. 
right? He's got a specific list of sites and so on. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yep, I think yep. it's less of an issue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, you can get a dedicated server to do it from, and that has its uh, advantages. And you know, it'd be easy to get one with enough hard drive space, right? He only needs a couple hundred gigs of, of storage space. And uh, you know, if it includes ten terabytes of traffic within that price, then he's he's pretty well set there. Uh, you can look at Amazon S3. Uh, for that, you're looking at like three cents a gigabyte for storage. So with less than a gigabyte of data, that'd be one cent. <laughs> or uh, three cents at most. Uh, and then the bandwidth charge out of Amazon is nine cents per gigabyte. Mm -hmm. uh, the advantage to that versus the dedicated server is the dedicated server is $150 a month every month, as long as you stay under the 10 terabytes, which is more than likely with that data set size. Uh, with the Amazon one, this cost goes up and down based on um, how much bandwidth you end up using. So it can save you, months some, uh, save you money some months. Uh, but at the same time, you know, for a business, sometimes having a, a fixed cost is easier to budget for than having one that's going to be different based on your usage every month. Absolutely. And S3 also has complications. You know, you can't R-sync into it. You have to put whole files. And so if a small bit of one file changes, you have to re-upload the entire Jeez. file. And, you know, they charge you half a cent for every uh, file you push up into Amazon on top of the bandwidth. And, and plus with S3, and, you got to use... You know, you have to have a piece of software that can communicate with the S3, S3 right. storage. It's not just like SFTP or exactly. R-Sync or whatever. It's, you know, proprietary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so, but I just think that was um, uh, the more flexible type of option. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd definitely say his, his best bet probably is a dedicated server should cost him about $150, so, $200 a month. And it'll include five to 10 terabytes of traffic. Why? So why you shouldn't be able to go over that. Why? Easily. So, okay. If it was me, Alan. And so let's say, for example, I had, I wanted to distribute some large files. Why wouldn't see to me, the, I, do, I would not want to run an entire server to do that. What I would prefer to do is upload to a service like scale engine and have then my other machines come pull it from scale engine. Yeah. Uh, it'd be the same thing, except for, you know, with your own one server, it's but instead, I'm just work. I'm just paying for your storage instead of running an entire server. Yeah, uh, that's an option, but so you should go to scaleengine.com. Set up the dedicated server for yeah. you, basically, and charge you for it. Right, but, uh, but it's a good price. So I I would go to Scale yeah. Engine, and I would consider if it's I good. was maybe that's another way to do it is because you could because in your case, you know, you're a lot more flexible in how you can get the files up there. And the reason why that matters is then if he's already got an existing system that he's using to upload, maybe he could just change where that SFTPs to or something like that and he could be sending it to scale engine and on the other any changes where they pull it from or whatever they do. Yeah, uh, um scale engine is really more designed for for distribution to the public yeah. rather than uh internal, but it, it can be used internally like that as well. Um and well, kind of the his model kind of reminded me of what we do for PCBSD, right? Chris at his thinking, house too. has a hundred by five. His upstream is only five megabits, and so the greater yes, PCBSD, of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and originally, the way they did it was they pushed it to their web server, but it only had a hundred megabit connection. So instead, now it pushes up to one of our servers, and then we push it out to basically like twenty-two servers all over the world that hold the PCBSD and, ISOs. And the and, way and, so on. The way it gets it up to your server is kind of unique, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, he uses rsync to push it to us. Oh, okay. But we use a special option of rsync called delayed update. Um, because he's sending a package repository, we don't want half the, oh, the packages from like A to the letter L to be updated and the ones from the letter M forward not being updated. <laughs> so basically he 
uh, doesn't rsync with the extra option delayed update, which basically creates a little hidden temporary directory and uploads all the new versions into there. And then once every file's all the way copied and it's done, then it in one second, or well, it takes a couple more than a second, but all at once, it renames all the files over top of the old versions. And then it's all good to go. And then that whole time, That's nice. because it's a ZFS data set for us, we take a snapshot every 15 minutes and replicate that out. And you, so that's it looks how really you're funny on the traffic graph yeah. because he spends 15 minutes uploading as fast as he can at 5 megabits, and then we spend one minute replicating that out at 1 gigabit per second. Yeah. And then <laughs> so <laughs> internally, you're distributed around Scale Engine using ZFS's replication. ZFS replication yeah. because it's block level, and basically if we used rsync on that huge like 500 gig data set every 15 minutes, it would have to read all those files all the time, yeah, or make assumptions that the dates are right and and went to right. It's just, and to it be just honest, handle it. That's uh, also something BitTorrent Sync would suck at. BitTorrent Sync would right. constantly be scanning all if it's a if it's a lot of little files, it, yes. it can uh, bog down. One of our original things was hosting an advertising network, and that was ten million tiny tiny files, and everything that walked the directory was just yeah. unusable. Yeah. Whereas ZFS replication was like, oh, you want every block that's changed between this time and this time? I'm the file system, so I know that. Here it is. And it just maxes out our, our internet connection all the time. Alan, are you ready for Richard's question? Yes. All right, it's a Tor question. He says, hi, Alan and Chris. I was listening to a show from a few weeks ago. We were discussing VPNs and privacy, and it raised a doubt. You discussed the fact that the Tor, Tor doesn't protect your traffic since you have to eventually leave an exit node unencrypted. Is it possible for me to set up a hidden service and mount an encrypted drive on a local server so that I would never have to exit a Tor onto the internet? Thanks for all the great shows. Richard. So I think maybe what he's asking is, is it possible for me to just set up a server on Tor and communicate and stay on Tor? I'm not quite sure what the question is, but... Right, so like basically to- what we're saying is, on top of using Tor, use the VPN so that the connection from the exit node back to your... So if you're out on the road somewhere and you want to get back to your house... Normally, you would just VPN straight there and avoid Tor because Tor is slow. <laughs> um, but yes, so everything after that, when it exits the exit node and goes out to the rest of the internet, is unencrypted, which is fine because you should be using HTTPS or SSH or some encryption thing mm-hmm, anyway. Mm-hmm. So you just have your encrypted message that's then encrypted again yeah. by Tor. Yeah. So when Tor encrypts it, when right. it comes out the exit node, it's still yeah. encrypted. What you're getting with Tor is the advantage of being bounced around. Yeah. Uh, we get with Tor basically hiding the real origin of the packet. Uh, and, but no, you can't control which exit node uh, something uses. Otherwise, people would use that to yep. Yep. Uh, force your traffic to go through their exit node, and that would be bad. All right, Alan. <clears throat> John O.J. writes in with uh, a story for us to read. It looks rather mm-hmm. long. He says, love the show. been listening since the beginning. Hey, I love that. I'm a developer who just inherited a Java web app. The password scheme it uses is SHA-256 and Assault. I was thinking about upgrading the scheme to at least something more sensitive like Bcrypt. I have been looking into how to support upgrading password schemes when we have a new one. I recall you mentioning a way to prepend an algorithm name to the beginning of a hashed password. This way, if a user logs in with a password using an old algorithm, like, say, MD5, we can rehash and store using the new algorithm. The problem is, if these users never, if the user never logs in, the old password would never get upgraded. So he's been reading about this, and he goes on a little bit to say, uh, this. He says one idea is we could repile all of the hashes. 
uh, we could recompute all the hashes, sorry, and once instead of uh, and waiting for the next login, we'd only have to store the scheme once. So he's trying to come up with a way to avoid having to wait for them to log in, but he has one concern. The weakest hash is the first one executed, and everything hinges on that going forward in terms of security. SHA-1, uh, SHA MD5, SALT plus password, etc., etc. I'm no expert in these hash functions, but I'm worried that performing MD5 will reduce the password in a much more predictable space than SHA-1. But he's more concerned also about just leaving them there and never getting changed. So, Alan, have you ever faced something like this? Any ideas? Okay, so the first thing is you need to understand the difference between, you know, an MD5 or a SHA-1 or SHA-256 password or uh, hash and a cryptographic hash that you use for passwords. So there's SHA-256, which is, you know, a string. Uh, and then there's SHA-256 crypt, which is do that 5,000 times <laughs> different each step. Uh, and that's the one you want to use for password. And if you use SHA-256 or SHA-512 crypt or bcrypt or even MD5 crypt, the output won't just be a hexadecimal hash. It will be dollar sign, then number indicating which algorithm, dollar sign, some other configuration stuff, uh, or the salt, dollar sign, then the hash. And that's uh, where the usefulness comes in. Um, the problem with the scheme he decided described of you know MD5 of the salt and the password hashed with the SHA-1 and the new salt or whatever is where do you saw store the MD5 salt, let alone the mm. SHA-1 salt? Mm. That's why in the crypt algorithm, it's dollar sign, whatever, dollar sign, the, ha the salt, dollar sign, the hash. Um, so that the salt is stored right there as part of the, the password hash. Um, with the other one, you have to store it manually or you, you have one static salt, which is horrible. Um, and so my biggest recommendation is don't use SHA anything or MD5 anything for your passwords. You want to use the crypt version. So, you know, with uh, SHA-256 crypt, you'll get what you're looking for. Uh, and basically then in your code where you go and check the password, mm -hmm. you just so if it doesn't start with dollar sign five for, you know, uh, SHA-256 crypt or dollar sign six for SHA-512 crypt or 2B for, for uh, Blowfish, then you assume it's the old one, whatever the old one was, that was bad. Uh, and then, yes, so when the user enters the real password, use the real password, the new random salt, and you store overwrite the old hash with the new good one. Uh, for the people that never log in, um, you should probably say after a while you disable their account and make their, or, you know, you do have a password policy where people have to change their password once a year, right? <laughs> or something to that effect uh, to deal with the old ones. Uh, but yeah, what you can do for the old ones is, you know, if you set some threshold, if people haven't logged in in so many months, uh, then you just nuke their password and force them to go through the password reset process. Yeah. It's probably the best way. Yeah. Uh, but the, the nice thing about the way that you do the upgrade is you don't need them to change their password. All they have to do is log in, and then you say, oh, you have an old password hash, and you're just attempting to log in, so I know your new password or your plain text password. If it hashes properly with the old algorithm and I know it's the right password, then I just overwrite it with uh, the safe way to store that same password. Yeah, and I think I would honestly just re-ask yourself the question, is it okay just to just, if, if they haven't logged in for a really long time, there's a pretty good probability they've forgotten their password anyways. But two, is it really that big of a deal if they have so to like change the, it yeah, on their uh, first yeah. login? You can easily write a script to identify these people because their password hash won't start with a dollar sign. Uh, and then you can just email them and tell them, you know, you need to log in or we're going to expire your account or something to that effect. Yeah. Now, he says this is a Java app, so he might not have as much control. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, 
you definitely don't want to be doing anything where you're manually coming up and manually doing the salts and stuff with just using SHA or MD5 or something. You definitely want to use the crypt versions because, for example, you know, with SHA 512 crypt is it's going to do it basically 5,000 times on the with slight different iterations of mixing the information together. Uh, and that's what makes it, you know, the time sensitive thing that you're looking for. Uh, where it actually takes some amount of time to do it, and it can't just easily be brute forced. And, uh, Alan, with that, that is all the emails we have in the bag for today. We do have actually a couple in the inbox, but I'm starting that build-up process to uh, save it for when we're recording a double episode at the end of April. So please go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down and fill out your question. You've seen a range of questions, but my gosh... We haven't had a PFSense question in like a month, and we didn't have a ZF question, ZFS question this entire episode. I'm feeling That's like... weird. I know. That hasn't happened in like a year. I know, I know. So that means they're out there. So you have a chance to send yours in, or you could also go to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Send them in there, because not only do we need questions for next week's episode, uh, but we're going to need questions for the episodes that we record uh, when Alan's in town, too. So we need lots of emails. Techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the email all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of Stories just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our incredible subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first one is a story about GitHub's new file system. What? Yeah, it's called the Git Large File Storage, LFS. Yes, I was... Git is just notoriously bad at dealing with very large files in your Git repo. And that really sucks if you're building something like a video game that has a bunch of very large video files <laughs> yes. or, or just texture files or whatever. And so it's been a problem with Git for a long time. So Git uh, Hub has launched the large file storage service, which basically puts a file in your repo that says, hey, this giant blob is actually over here at this URL and you can get it. Uh, they're including one gigabyte of large file storage with one gigabyte of bandwidth for each repository uh, for free, and beyond that, they have pricing. Huh. Uh, yeah, something to watch. Uh, I signed up for the beta, but it's uh, they're only doing certain bytes right now. Yep. And, uh, yeah, there you go. So, yeah, basically, it puts a little pointer in your repo and says this giant file is actually over here uh, because storing it in Git is very inefficient. All right, fascinating stuff. Uh, not and, to be uh, outdone, Amazon, yes. yeah, Amazon's uh, file system, EFS, Amazon Elastic File System, is uh, going into preview. But, Alan, did you see this one? It Which supports one? Uh, network file system mounts, so the applications and tools yeah, you so use. So, basically, the way you interact with Amazon's EFS is via NFS v4. Yeah. Now, uh, that is hot, right? Yeah. Uh, basically means it's one protocol that it can work with basically anything. Yeah. Uh, and it... I wonder what kind of stuff is backing it. I'm guessing it's probably pretty Amazon-specific, but I know GlusterFS can do some stuff with NFS in that kind of a fashion. Uh, I mean, the fact that I can NFS um, mount and transfer files in like that well, is Well, specifically, super- yeah. Uh, compared to S3, which is how you would normally do like object storage in, in Amazon, is in Amazon you can't modify or append to a file. You basically write a file once, and then you can just write a new file and delete the old one if, if you want to replace so, it or whatever. So here's example pricing. Whereas this will allow, you could have like a log file that would grow. Yeah. Well, for example, so 177 gigabytes a month would be about $53. Yeah, they charge 30 cents per gigabyte a month, but it's actually based on how many hours each gigabyte is stored. So if your thing's half empty for the first half, or you, if you have like 100 gigs for the first half of the month 
and then halfway through the month, you add a second 100 gigs for 200 gigs, you basically pay for 150 gigs, right? You pay for basically each hour that a file or each hour that the, the blocks are used uh, at a hmm. rate of the 30 cents per gigabyte per month divided by the 744 hours in a month and on and on and on. I, really I don't know why they don't just do tar snap and price it in pico yeah. dollars. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's neat that you can do it with Renifesto. That that's but yes. Uh, so this basically gives you uh, a an elastic, well, kind of like a basically allows you to have a NFS mount you can share between a bunch of your EC2 instances, so they can all access the same file. Oh, I was thinking. So, I was thinking a DigitalOcean droplet. Couldn't I just couldn't I use this to like give like uh, essentially probably. unlimited storage to a droplet that's five dollars? Probably. That's, see, that to me is extremely you, compelling. You'd be paying for bandwidth in that case as well. I, actually, I don't know if you can access this outside of EC2 instances. Ah, uh, okay. That it might be, be internal good. bandwidth only. Okay. Plus, NFS over the internet gets sluggish. Well, that's no true. Security, that's so. a good point. I was thinking there's not no really that far ahead because I'd have to have some sort of VPN or something, wouldn't I? Not yeah. as much fun but, anymore. Uh, not as much fun. You know, it, it can still be useful. Yes, yeah, especially if you have stuff up in EC2, yep. which I do not. Uh, but you know that's okay. Yes. Hey, so next story. Surprise, surprise! Employees have no qualms about selling corporate passwords. No doubt about yeah. that. So uh, they did a survey and found that one in seven uh, corporate employees would be willing to sell corporate passwords for one hundred and fifty dollars or less. Sure, especially if so I'm they don't even want a lot of money. <laughs> no, especially if I'm upset. Yep. You fire me. Yep. Could be the new thing. Yeah, something to be aware of. Change passwords and people leave, everybody. This next story is a good one. And guess what? It was designed for a sysadmin, supposedly. There is a hidden backdoor API to get root privileges in OS X. Well, sort of. The TLDR is the admin framework in Apple's OS X contains a hidden backdoor a to allow root privileges. It's been there for several years, at least, at least since 2011. The guy over at TrueSec that wrote this post found it in October of 2014 and says it can be exploited to gain and escalate privileges to root from any user account in the system. He suspects the intention was probably to serve the system preferences app and system setup command line tool to any user. Apple has now released OS 10.10.3 today, actually, I believe, or yesterday, which solves this problem. Here's the caveat, though. All previous versions of OS 10 unpatched. Here's the problem with that. All previous versions of OS X are better than the current version of OS X, with the <laughs> exception of OS X.10.8. But 10.7 and 10.9 are like some of the best releases of OS X ever, and 10.10 is still currently in the train wreck phase. So it really sucks because companies like Jupyter Broadcasting remain on OS X.10.9 Mavericks because of production issues that it has caused. Yep. So we, are now, we now remain vulnerable to this and icing on the cake we have the remote management settings turned on because we use that so yep uh so they note that this was first discovered in october of 2014 and reported to apple the next day on october 3rd uh then they shared exploit code two weeks later with apple and then they uh did the initial full disclosure date was set for january 12th uh then uh os 10 10.10 came out and turned out to be vulnerable to root pipe and a couple other things uh, and that's when, uh, in November of 2014, a Apple asked to po postpone the disclosure later than January 12th. Then um, OS 10.10.1 came out, still vulnerable. Uh, then a joint decision between Apple and the company that found the problem uh, postponed the disclosure uh, some more. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Apple created the CVE on January 16th, which is a couple of days after the original expected release date. On January 27th, they released 10.10.2, which <laughs> was still vulnerable. Mm. Then uh, March 2nd, they released 10.10.3. Uh, it entered public beta, but the issue was finally solved. 
And then uh, April 1st, Apple confirmed the release is coming the second week of April. Uh, and that was April 8th. And so 10.10.3 is out. And then on April 9th, which is today, uh, this was uh, released. Uh, Apple says that it required a substantial amount of changes on their side and that they will not backport the fixes. <clears throat> you know, I'm gonna, I've said yep. it before on the show. I'm going to say it again. If you are truly seriously concerned about security, I'm not sure Apple products are great um, because right. I think oh, that Apple isn't the a company that has the culture up for it. I don't think they've, right. I, they have never, right. like they haven't lived in the fire of constantly being under attack. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when Microsoft had a problem with Active Directory that was so bad that it required them to rewrite and add new features to be able to fix it, they didn't backport those either. Right, right, yeah. I know. Of course, they didn't backport them to uh, end of life releases really, so yeah, yeah. it's not quite the same thing. Right, because 10.9 uh, is still know, fairly recent. Yes, although Apple basically says if you don't upgrade, we don't care, right? So, all right. Well, we mentioned which it would be easier if if ten ten actually worked, eh? Yes, <laughs> we mentioned it last week. The uh, opportunistic encryption in Firefox. Well, I guess a vulnerability has forced Mozilla to disable it. Ellen, did you read yes. this? Yes, uh, basically. Um, on the opportunistic encryption, somebody could set a header that would redirect you, and it wouldn't check the certificate in that case. And so, if you had a site that had a real certificate for some whatever domain, it would then redirect you to a bogus site that would pretend to be like PayPal or a bank or something, and it wouldn't check the certificate there and, re and realize that it was fake. <laughs> so basically, you could uh, do uh, man in the middle attacks on people because of this. I got you. Good enough uh, for them to say, let's turn it off. I think that was a good call. Uh, I just wanted to point you to a story that I thought was interesting. Gizmo did a, I'm going to say it, a decent job at writing up about uh, the FBI's own brand of malware called Computer and IP Address Verifier. Uh, it's designed to track criminal suspects by logging their IP address, MAC address, computer systems. It's a tool that doesn't spy necessarily on the entire computer, but a narrow list of parameters provided by the FBI. But as the Washington Post points out, it's still a pretty su powerful surveillance piece of uh, software. It can download files, photographs, store stored emails, gather real-time images by activating cameras connected to the computers, microphones, and take screenshots. Uh, they say uh, what we do know about SIPAV, as it's called, or SIPAV, is largely stems from court documents. FBI has been doing this as long, far back as 2007, according to uh, court documents, where it uh, had an, a uh, in, it did a phishing message on a MySpace page by impersonating the Associated Press. We talked about this on the show once before. Uh, another FBI spyware was used in 2013 to inject surveillance malware into a Colorado bomb threat suspect's Yahoo email account. Um, it looks like, according to court records, that there's some indication that the FBI has been using spyware since 2011, which is six years before the FBI had a policy on using software like this, which would indicate mm -hmm. that now that they do, that policy was formed in the light of, well, now that we're doing these things, let's write a policy that fits what we're already doing. Yeah. Or, hey, look, somebody was going too far with this. We should write a policy setting out the rules. And those rules usually are more accommodating than they would be if you were to write them yeah. beforehand. Uh, wow. How about this one? AT&T call center sold mobile customer information to criminals? Yes. Oh, my god. Uh, more than 279,000 U.S. customers of AT&T were affected by data breaches originating call centers in Mexico, Colombia, and the Philippines. Uh, AT&T has agreed to pay a $25 million, civil, uh, $25 million civil penalty and create a new data security program uh, in a settlement with the FCC. Hmm. I wonder if the details of that settlement include free Experian coverage. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe not. Uh, 
I don't even know if they'll have to notify all the people. I'm looking at the, uh, yeah. I'm glancing the at it right FCC now. The FCC says they cannot and will not stand idly by when a carrier's lax data security practices mm -hmm. exposes personal information of hundreds of thousands of the most uh, vulnerable Americans to identity theft and fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, the data breaches at the three call centers operated by a contract uh, vendor of AT&T uh, lasted for months uh, with sales of customer records uh, to a Mexico, uh, at, a call, at a Mexico call center running from November 2013 to April 2014. Wow. The data breaches at the Mexico call center affected about 68,000 AT&T customers and the breaches in Colombia and the Philippines affected 211,000 customers. Uh, the data breach in Mexico involved only three uh, data or call center employees, while the one in Colombia and the Philippines included 40 employees that were involved in the scam. Uh, AT&T hmm. has terminated some call center vendor contracts due to the breaches mm -hmm. and has strengthened some internal data protection policies or processes. Uh, AT&T has no reason to believe that the stolen customer records were used for identity theft or financial fraud. There you go. Well, why the hell else would they pay for them? Right. <laughs> uh, no reason to believe is a great way to get out of stuff no reason to believe alright so I, did, I don't know if you caught this one uh, the subreddit sure did the Manjaro Linux project had an issue where their SSL certificate expired and they uh, went to their blog to inform users uh, how to work around this problem until they have a new cert in place Alan and here's what they say oops we forgot to update our SSL certificate before it expired this means you'll get a warning in your web browser when you try to access our wiki or our form. We're working to get a new SSL certificate. Please bear with us. Until then, if you use Firefox, you can try a private window, which may allow you to add an exception to ignore the expired certificate. You can also try a different web browser, as different web browsers treat the issues differently. Now, See, that's the weird one, is that... Why... <laughs> Do you know what it originally said? Should make a difference. Well, originally it suggested turning your clock back. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. Uh, but yeah, um, I don't. The private browsing mode shouldn't matter. That's I don't know what they're on about. I guess because you don't want to add a permanent exception to your browser. Maybe. Maybe. Although, yeah, I don't know if private mode actually considers that. Hey, anyway. while we're talking about it, uh, but they, they, uh, you know, well, we laugh at people for doing that, uh, and you know, we're like, you know, that's why we have like Nagios can monitor a site and tell you, hey, in 30 days, your SSL certificate expires. Warning, right? And then, oh, in 14 days, your SSL certificate expires. You should renew that, like now. Mm -hmm. Like now. Everybody uh, forgets Google had kind of a different problem that people don't generally run into. Yeah. See, Google has, uh, you remember how we talked about these subordinate uh, sub-CA certificates mm -hmm. that uh, CNET gave to the company in Israel, and, or uh, in Egypt, and that's why they got in trouble? Yes. Yes. Well, last week. A certificate authority gave Google their own root CA that they used to assign all their stuff. No. And Google failed to realize that that expired. No. So the, the certificate for SNMP or uh, smtp.gmail.com was still valid. The problem was the certificate that signed it had expired. Jeez Louise. And so I'm guessing the monitoring didn't check that or something. Uh, so Google's root certificate that issued that certificate expired. And so a whole bunch of their certificates stopped working all the ones signed by that certificate authority. And it took a little longer to fix because they didn't have to just fix one certificate, but every certificate issued by that certificate authority. <laughs> That's why usually those types of certificates have a much longer expiry date, but I guess uh, for a sub-CA, they don't quite do that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm sure some people at Google got quite a bit of hell for that one. But it kind of makes the Manjaro one look uh, 
It's a little more tame. When yeah, it does, it, doesn't it? That's a good like, way to put it. At least our root CA didn't expire. It's like, well, you don't have a root CA, but anyway. Alan, uh, we mentioned it earlier in the show today, that Edward Snowden interview. Uh, in just 60 mm-hmm. days, or less than 60 days, uh, Congress is going to uh, decide whether or not to renew the Patriot Act, which includes uh, the Section 215, which allows... NSA to do upstream collection on the internet, and there is uh, groups that are organizing against this, including a nationwide call-in campaign. And if people watching are interested and motivated, I will have information in the show notes that you guys can totally go check out and uh, maybe get involved. Mm-hmm. I say it's uh, probably an effort with worth pursuing. And speaking of Snowden, yes, uh, the journalist uh, Greenwald, who's uh, one of the two people distributing the Snowden information uh, has, was in, uh, at a security conference in Utah and was criticizing universities uh, for opening up their campuses to government agencies in exchange for funding. You know, uh, that universities shouldn't be helping the government uh, break our security communications. Very good, very good. All right, Alan. Boy, heavy stuff. Universities shouldn't really be selling out like that. but It's heavy stuff. It makes me feel, yep. yeah. Eight ways. Here's some more heavy stuff. Eight ways you didn't know hackers could steal your identity. Not that this is trying to scare you at all, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. They can steal your frequent fire miles, of course. That doesn't... St- and we saw the same one with, uh, like, even your hotel reward points. We saw that, remember, with the Hilton Honor stuff? Uh, they can steal your health insurance info. They can commit crimes in your name. They can hack your company's chat system. Yes, uh, a lot of companies have started having an internal chat system, kind of like instant messenger, yeah. IRC type thing, but private. And if they get in there, they can get all kinds of problems. We've seen them take over social media accounts. Number five on the list, they'll take over your social media accounts and impersonate you. They can steal your tax refunds. Boy, we've talked about that a lot in the last few yep. weeks. They can hold all your computer files for ransom. Yeah, you we know, talked about that one uh, this with is, the school board. This is good. They can open up credit cards in your name, but this does feel a little like scare, scare, scare a little bit. Cause um, no, it's just I think it's more... Not ever, these are not the ones you normally consider when you steal your identity, right? Most people don't think about their, like their airline miles account. Those are probably the ones that have the weakest passwords ever. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that is very true. The health insurance, that's probably one people don't think about. Same with the, even the yeah. IRS one. It's like, yeah. oh, if I didn't sign up for my account at IRS, then I'm in trouble. Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, all of them are decent, we're thinking about. And if you watch the show, they're not too surprising at all. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, when it's a mainstream source like Time Magazine, it kind of, it's like, yes, finally, people look at this. Hey, remember that uh, Chinese uh, certificate authority we talked about last week? Yep. Guess what? Next story uh, on the iOS platform. Yeah, Apple uh, is the only one that didn't pull trust in it. Uh, Firefox ended up doing it, and so did Google, uh, like we talked about last week. Uh, but Apple released their latest security update, and CN Nick is still perfectly trusted. Mm. Like I said, Apple just, it's not in their culture. It's not in their culture. They just are not, they get some stuff like uh, like the fingerprint scanner and the secure enclave and the CPU. And I don't passing. know, this, the, the fingerprint scanner is probably more marketing. It's yeah, really I know, false but, security. But it's actually the way, worse than a password. No, I'm not saying the scanner itself. I'm right. saying the way they implement, like in their CPU, a storage spot for the authentication credentials. That's okay, right, clever. I don't, Apple didn't come up with that. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, all right, Alan, right, next story in the roundup. Tell me this isn't how you feel. Come on, come on. Every single router in the world should look like the USS Enterprise. I actually think this is probably ingenious from a Nintendo design, too. Possibly. Yeah, look at this. So, yeah, it is the USS Enterprise as a Wi-Fi router. You can't buy it like this. 
But uh, there is a full-fledged video that will walk you through how to make a Wi-Fi router. out of the, the saucer section is a great spot for the board, seriously. The nacelles are Although, perfect honestly, for the if antennas. You, if you have the tiny little Japanese one that I have, you could basically stick it on the bottom of any model and it would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love the lights, the light up so the saucer section lights up. I mean, this is I wish this is something I would have thought of. Mm-hmm. <sighs> maybe maybe in the future. And you know what? If I ever had like a room that was like th- like like the bridge of the Enterprise, but I wanted Wi-Fi in there, that's how I would do it as I would slip it. Something in. like that, yeah. Yeah. And our last story in the roundup, IT security in one comic nutshell. Mm-hmm. Guy walks up to an elevator, presses the button, walks into the elevator. Now, what's he doing here? Oh, eye scans. He goes inside he, a garage. He does a, a palm scan. Right, yeah. Access granted to get then in the Then he gets a room. retina scan. And I, retina scan, and then he unlocks a vault, a big bank vault, and then a yep. small like home vault yep. to get out a piece of paper yep. and reads it and nods. And then he goes and hangs his head out the window and yells down to some other guy who's got his head out the window and says, okay, so the password is Joshua. And the other guy yells <laughs> the back, password what? password is Joshua. Joshua. And spells it out slower. He's like, oh, Joshua, I got it. Thanks. Yeah. And he shouts so it across. So all this effort in storing the password securely and then sticks his head out the window and yells it. And what the joke there is, is like uh, uh, Angela and I, I, you could take this. I go through all this trouble. I've got LastPass, two-factor, super complicated passwords. And then and then every now and then I end up emailing her a password out of it. Or I instant messenger a password out of my LastPass vault. And I'm like, oh, jeez. Yep. It's the truth. What are you going to do, though? All right, Alan. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 209. If you can believe it, don't forget we want your emails. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Send them into the show or the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And we'd love to have you join us live next week. We do this show on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. You can also go to jblive.info for the audio streams. We've got low bandwidth for the, for your car, high bandwidth, which still is not that high bandwidth if you think about it, for your desk. So that way if you just like the audio or don't want to do video, you got all that kind of stuff, jblive.tv Thursdays. And you hang out with the chat room, you can talk to us in between segments, all that kind of good stuff. If you can't join us live, that subreddit's a great place to go. And don't forget we've got RSS feeds for each different version of the show so you can get an, uh, everything from the audio up to the HD automatically when we do a new episode every single week. Well, at least 209 weeks in a row so far. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.